Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. All right. All right. Beautiful Wednesday. The B&E Podcast. So hot. (laughs) (laughs) But we got the cool beer, which uh, I'll just, you know what, I'm just going to uh, introduce this right away. Sure. Um, Because I feel like we've been doing it so late these Mm -hmm. last few. It's like, oh, geez. And one time I think we almost forgot. (laughs) Yeah. Nearly, nearly forgot to introduce the beer. But we brought it in. Yeah. Um, So this is from, uh, this is from Brassneck. Our good friends Brassneck. Nice. And this is called Joe's Barn. Oh, and Joe's I, Barn. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know if we've had this one. I couldn't remember. If, I don't think I so. I don't think we have. No. Um, he said they've. It's one that they've done before, but they've they've kind of like re like they've twisted some of the things and refined it to okay. a degree. But it's um, a traditional saison. Really. Of uh, good old six percent on that bad boy. So huh. it's, uh, it's a little bit heavier than you might. I didn't catch that. It, it kind of seemed like a, like a, like a little bit of a, a lager with like a bit of a, an element of an ale. Mm. That's what I got. From it. I almost got a lager that they had that was really also quite tasty. Yeah. But, um, it's been pretty know. refreshing though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought something like this might be uh, pretty good. We had, a, we had a long conversation before we got into this talk. So yeah, uh, yeah. So let's let me. This is our topical day. So yeah, um, we came up with one which was somewhat unrelated to the conversation that we'd had leading up to it. But um, this is about all about challenging the conventions of art. Yeah, and um, I I just think that this yeah like I'm excited to see where this one's going to go because. Uh, and I'm surprised it's taken us this long to actually go into this because every now and then I hear about something someone's doing, you know, in the art world or even how something is, there's sort of an artfulness to seemingly unrelated industries that they just, they just innovate in some way. They, they, they challenge how we think something is done. And I think that there is an art in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what happens too is things, um, after they've been done a lot, start to become conventional. And so then we don't even look at them as art anymore. And, uh, you know, um, for example, just before we were, we started this conversation, I was talking about how just down the street on Maine, you call this as hipster as you want, but it's there. It's a bathtub that's cut open halfway and there's cushions in it and it's made into a, a love seat. And it looks really cool. It's really like, uh, you know, it's funky. Um, and they basically designed this, um, bathtub, which was like an old kind of an old style tub, but it looks cool. Um, but anyway, I mean, for those people who kind of want something innovative, that is kind of an innovation of it. But, you know, after you see something that's artistic, you see it enough times, it starts to not really seem like it's an art piece anymore. I think it starts to become almost very standard because even, uh, a couch, a regular couch was artistic when it was first created. You know, someone had to design that, you know, the first time. But I think what happens is things become usual, they become conventional. And so then we just take them for granted 
but I was, yeah, stripped down to simply what their function is. Yeah. And, and functional. And the, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing is like in, in our houses, um, you know, we can have very functional things. We just have a place to sit, a table to eat on or work on and a bed to sleep and whatever. And things can be very functional, but we add things to our houses, which are more than that. We add little designs, we had plants, we had pictures, and this is all part of our artistic yeah. expression. Or, and, and to sort of almost dive down a bit of a philosophic rabbit hole with that, it's, you know, if somebody designed their house to be a completely functional space, like with almost nothing to it, there is almost a kind of an art in that as well. There's a reason, there's an intention behind it, yeah, a feeling that it's trying to to create, right? So it's like, you know, it's, it's, we're getting into such a subjective <laughs> territory. A true artist, you see art everywhere. But yeah, it's true. I mean, you're, you're right. I, I've been in a really functional place before. Um, usually it was when I was staying like abroad or something and someone just had a place where we all could like rest our house, our, our, our head. <laughs> anyway, and you know, really it just had all the, ba- the only the bases, guy's place, had couch, table, TV, desk, some mattresses for beds and it was like no pictures on the wall like well your kitchen but everything was function just function period and um there was a there was a an uh an emptiness to it that I felt you know like like obviously there's people there and the conversations were great and whatever but there's an emptiness to the environment where it's so functional that it was like there was like no thought put into any of the design of it you know what I mean and um there is a, an experience of a place like that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or bad or better or worse or whatever, but, um, I think that, um, I think that's like when we, when we have our places, we do try to enhance an experience out of them a little bit more. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, that is kind of an artistic way. Although I don't think this person was trying to be artistic. No, if it was, (laughs) then it's just, yeah, it, it was just sort of form, but sometimes, you know, like when you're engaged with it, if you're trying to create an intentional experience and, you know, there's artists who do things like that. They, they design like just a space for you to be in. Like I've seen exhibits like that where it's not, you know, you're not going in and you're just seeing, like looking at a, at a painting or a sculpture. It's, uh, it's a, it's an environment that you're put into Mm -hmm. to create some sort of a, a feeling. Uh, I remember seeing this exhibit at, um, the Vancouver art gallery, uh, a few years ago and they were doing like a, a surrealist thing and they had a modern surrealist artist. So I'd gone seen like all of these like paintings in the one section. Then I went up and, uh, there was, it was like almost like a, one of those house of mirrors in a way, but it was, it was a little bit different from that. But there was, there was words, there was things written on some of these places. So like you'd come around a corner and it would, it would say like all of these sort of different things about, um, you know, thoughts that go on in our heads when we, when we see ourselves in mirrors or Mm. things that we think about ourselves. So it became this really interactive sort of experience. And, you know, there was something artful about it, but it was very strange. I never experienced art that way. Right. Right. Which is, I, I, sort of what we're talking about today in terms of what is the, the arts or the craft that we are engaged in and, you know, what are different ways that, uh, that we can express those things or what are different ways that we've seen other people express those things? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and um, before we move on from from this and we start talking about kind of the innovation of convention, um, you know, one of my, actually, I think my favorite museum that I've been to is the Met in New York City and in Manhattan. And um, you walk through different time periods. You walk through environments of different time periods. Like you walk through, um, you know, kind of these French or, or, or France, like, basically these the the way architecture was designed there you walk through parts where it's like Egypt you know where you're walking through basically like what was uh you know um like a pyramid essentially you know and there's and then Rome and whatever you're walking through it all right Greece and there's all the environments and the art and the style it's all so different right and everything is just quite such an experience you know and um you know you're getting an experience of the architecture you're getting an experience of the furniture, you're going to experience of the clothes, all this stuff. Um, and so I think, uh, where this kind of conversation is going is that our art, I think becomes normal at a certain point. It becomes usual and we almost take it for granted. Like, I don't even think that most of us even recognize that this is a time of art right now. Like even our surroundings, like this just seems normal to us. But one day in the future, people might walk through our houses like the, the way they are today and be like, wow, people used to live like this, you know, where they actually had to use a manual thing to turn on their tap. You know what I mean? Or something like that, because everybody, like nobody yeah. touches anything anymore because everything's censored. Right. Yeah. And like people used to sit and watch these little tiny screens to watch movies. And meanwhile, now like everything's hologram and you know, whatever. And you're in the movie cause it's VR. Yeah. So like our, I think this conversation, at least in my interpretation of it, was that we were going to talk about what are what is the conventional way in which we do art today, and how do we innovate that for the future, but as artists, to be a bit ahead of the curve, and to look at how not only can we go into the future, but how can we pull from the past to innovate into the future and what we do moving forward. Yeah, 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 absolutely, like stretching ourselves out a little bit, and um, yeah, because that's how new things are done. There was, uh, I remember some time back when you'd, you'd come, just come back from New York and you had seen this play that was in like this building that like, Oh yeah. It was, it was really crazy and everyone was wearing masks and stuff. And you were just like walking around and you were piecing this story together. I thought it was fascinating. It was fascinating. You know, someone else is on the other end of this podcast and they're going, they're naming it right now. And I forget the name, but it's this building um, in Manhattan where they do it. And you, there's three or four floors where you're walking and you experience the play based on where you go in the building and things are happening all over all the time. And it's all this amazing story and nobody can see each other. Cause all the, all the people who are audience members are wearing masks. And then the only people you can see their face are the actors, but it's all very interpretive. Like no one's saying anything. They're just doing things together. And, um, Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. You know, yeah. it's, it's one of, one of a kind, totally innovative. Yeah. 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 And the, I just remember that being so interesting because I'm like, I'd never heard of anything like that, but I, I could appreciate the value in it. Like immediately mm-hmm. I, I, I understood the significance of something like that. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes it can, these things can get brushed off as just being like, Oh, that's like, just like a, you know, I don't know, being sort of artsy fartsy, airy fairy, or just like being weird for the sake of being weird. But I'm, there was something about that, that experience that you shared with me that I, I appreciated the value of it immediately. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just thought, 
yeah, I can totally see how that would, how, how that is so artful, you know, mm-hmm. like in, in terms of, of giving you something that you've never quite had before, but still using some, like some mediums of, of storytelling and performance to, to communicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's just in a way that like, it was just in a vehicle that that's never been done before. Well, yeah. I mean, there's so like, I, I think the thing that interests me so much with this conversation is how there's this very conventional way in which we, we take art in right now. Um, and I, I think just based on technology, that's going to change drastically, like drastically in the next, like, you know, few years, five, 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be so different that we're going to almost look back at this time and be like, and we'll still probably take in content this way, but like watching television will not be anything like it is today. Like, like we'll almost look at it. Like, like remember when people used to watch black and white television and you're like, and it was on this tiny little television. It's almost even hard to believe. Cause now we have like the average home has like a 30 inch television, 40 inch. Uh, now people, I think it's even boosted up to 40 inches. The average television now yeah. in a modern city home. So, you know, people are watching this high definition 4k, uh, sometimes 3d image yeah. on this little screen. Right. But one day we might look at those screens and be like, wow, people watched it on such a small screen and it was only 2d and like, or if they wanted 3d, they had to wear these stupid glasses. Whereas like in the future, it's going to be like holographic and you know, you're, you're not even watching on the screen. You're in it. Like you're like whatever you're experiencing is more like that play. Like you're in the middle of it. So where you look is what you, what you take. Yeah. Right. And so when you watch a movie, like you know, we watch movies right now over and over and we see the same images every time and we go, man, I missed that before. Meanwhile, we were watching the same image, but like future generations, they're, they're like, I was looking left during that time of the scene. Now this time I didn't even notice to look right. I didn't even know that was happening. And so when people come out of a movie, for example, they might talk about things and they're like, I never even saw that really. Like, yeah. you know, cause they didn't have the cue or they missed it yeah. or whatever. And the theaters would probably love that too, because yeah. return visits. Just right. To well, that's the funny thing about in- innovation. Innovation in some ways, I think it often pulls from the past because if you look at the VR thing, it's more like theater, you know, it's because when you're watching yeah. theater, you, you have a, a picture of the whole thing, but we tend to focus with our eyes. We get focused on one person. We get focused on another. We don't even realize we're looking back and forth, yeah. but in VR, that's what you're doing. So it is a more theatrical experience. You're more in it, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean like with, with theater, you're somewhat, you do have a kind of a limitation as to where you can f- focus on. Like it's, a, it's usually, you know, there's, it's still somewhat centered, but you do still have the freedom, especially like in an ensemble production of some kind, you know, like you can, you know, you're taking different things in, you right. know, you don't necessarily see it. Whereas like with film, you know, you're being, it's very directed, very specific, which is in some ways part of, of the art form itself is how well do you draw people's attention and what are you drawing attention to? And for what reason, you know, like you're telling something very, very specific. Um, and I think that there will always be a value in that. I think that there are certain art forms that, have been established that we, we won't see them go away. You know, we will always have painters. We will always have musicians. We will always have, you know, 
films and movies and, and, and things done in a, in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, because we've, for whatever reason, they've established some sort of a quality to us, you mm-hmm. know, like we appreciate something about these mediums. Um, but I mean, the thing is that there's always new, there's always new mediums. There's always, and, and sometimes by challenging yourself and, and by challenging the conventions of things, like you can stumble upon all sorts of new ways of, of communicating, mm-hmm. I think. Well, and also I think with, um, challenging conventions and innovating, it's not about doing something better and it's not just about doing something different. I think it's about expanding something that is already working, you know, and, uh, you know, cause I think we've all seen or experienced art where it's like, Oh, they just did that cause it was different. And it's like kind of weirdly disconnected and it just yeah. seems egotistical in a way. Cause they're just trying to stand out to be different. Um, or there's things where they're like, like, it's almost like, I mean, no one says this really, but it's kind of like there, it, something's new sometimes seems better, but it's not that it was better. It's just that it's new and we like new and we like fresh. And I think innovation and challenging conventions is kind of like that. We want something new and fresh, but we also want it to be an innovation in that it expands upon something that's already working. Yeah. And, and the reason why I think that is because just go look at all the new concept cars they're coming out with. Like, look, go look at those images. None of those will be made, almost none. Right. And the reason why is because they're too far away from what's already working. But, but eventually in the next like five, 10, 15, 20 years, our cars might actually look more like that. Yeah. But we have to, with innovation, we incrementally move. We don't move. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and then yeah. just do a whole new thing. Right. We get glimpses at what could be, Yeah. you know, and, and until sort of sometimes it is just a completely a technological barrier. Right. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, this, this car, yeah, it's completely operational, but it also costs about $500,000 to make. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, for most people, it doesn't really make it sustainable, but you know, in however many years, like, you know, they say five, six years, we'll probably have, can probably produce these cars for like $30,000 kind of thing. Well, yeah. And there's also an economy to art and this is the industry side of things where, um, a new invention, um, the, the, the innovation of it, there's an economy to it, meaning that people and companies want to make money off of that. So for example, let's just go with power windows, um, power windows and heat seats were really special at one time. Now on a standard car, you can get power seats, uh, a sunroof heated seats, and it's all pretty normal. But at one time, those were only on luxury cars. And so, um, I think with innovation and art, your initial innovation is actually treated like luxury. Later, after it's kind of more commonplace, it becomes more of a common thing yeah. and it's not as luxurious anymore. So I think um, that's the, that is the real, from an industry point of view, it is really valuable to be an innovator and to be someone that challenges, yeah. you know, our, our normal constraints of what art ought to be. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is too, is that a lot of these things really kind of fail you know, and sometimes they fail quite miserably. You know, people will try to do something different that's never been done before. Like, uh, Mercedes did window wipers on your headlights. Oh yeah. And that was like, Oh, window wipers on your headlights. And like, it kind of was a good idea, but like, do you see anyone have window wipers on their headlights today? I mean, every car could have it, right. But every car has 
power, pretty well, most have power windows, they have heated seats, they have air con, they have all the nice features that those had, but for whatever reason, window wipers on your headlights was not a big winner. Yeah. <laughs> you know what is a cool thing that's making it into cars though is headlights that turn. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Like as you go around corners Very and stuff cool. in the dark, like it's like it points to where you're going. Oh, I didn't know about that one. Yeah. Neat. That's yeah. a neat one. <laughs> yeah, I could see that catching on. Yeah. Because yeah. I think sometimes there's innovations that, you know, like it's like they're, they're sometimes they're fad and they seem kind of interesting, but then they kind of burn out. And then there's other ones where you're like, no, that's really good. Like, oh, the rear camera on cars, that's becoming, I'm noticing that oh, in yeah. almost all cars. But I remember when that first came out, it was only on the most luxurious cars. Yeah. You know, but now like I'm finding like a lot of standard cars seem to have that rear view, um, video and that pops up in your screen, you know? Yeah. And even to have a screen in your car at one point, that would have been really special. But now it's like, well, most cars have the GPS standard and, you yeah. Know. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of, I mean, and I think we can relate this back to, you know, acting back to directing, back to writing, whatever it might be. But these are just some, I think these are good ones because with the car, it's, um, it, it really is innovation and industry meeting each other. You know? Yeah. 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 And, and sometimes like it's, there's breaking conventions and like, it's not even necessarily a a huge thing. Like in, in film, for example, like Birdman, which came out a few years ago, right. That movie was all shot. Like it was one and, and not that there hasn't been a movie done before that was like a continuous shot. I think one of the first ones was rope. Rope. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock. Um, but you know, just like with the, technologically what was capable of being done at that time to what we can do now, like, especially with, um, with, you know, digital, mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the rise, of, like most films are shot digitally now. Yeah. I think like, and you can actually, you can tell, yeah. you know, because now when I see movies that were shot in film, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like that's, I can see. And there's almost a quality to it. But at the same time, there is something like, yeah, but it doesn't, film doesn't quite capture what digital can do now. I remember there's, and there's still lots of people who are, you know, like to poo all over (laughs) shooting in in digital. The thing is, is that it's not any better or any worse. I mean, once you get all of those judgments out of the way, you can actually get on to sort of creating anything. I think judgment is a big part of, especially when it comes to things like that. It's like, Oh, well, film is really where the art is, you know, because you only have so much space and you've got to capture it and it's embedded. And that argument is ridiculous because if it really (laughs) was true, I mean, if it was really that film, okay, I'm a filmmaker, I use actual film. So I'm an artist was actually true. Then, then go back to hand piecing them together. If really that's what an artist does, why don't you just go back to the beginning when they had to when they had to cut them with their hands with scissors and pin them together and look at them really close in the light and try and see if they match, go do that and then call yourself an artist. But we all realize that, that technology moves forward and it's, and and we're innovating and things are getting more, you know, effective. So you're not an artist just because you did it the traditional way. So that whole argument is, is I think bullshit, but I can respect if someone wants to go shoot in an eight millimeter film to get that feel. Yes. Because that's, that's what it, it gives you a real genuine feel. Then yes, go do it. But don't talk about high and mighty about how that's better for some yeah. reason, because I think, um, you know, with the way technology is going, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Like it might be great 
for the effect that you're trying to get for the, like maybe you're trying to evoke a sense of nostalgia in people or, or create right. some kind of, yeah, like a particular aesthetic that contributes to what it is you're trying to communicate, the feeling you're trying to give your audience. Yeah. Now, so then it's still coming down to like a truthful, authentic thing that you're trying to do as opposed to, Oh, I just want to do it because it's different or out of some, you know, sense of superiority that, you know, I shoot on whatever, because there, again, there's arguments to be made either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, Robert Rodriguez was, he was one of the first, he was one of the early adopters of digital mm-hmm. before it was, it's like, cause now it's gotten so much better than where it was at in its early stages, but he was an early adopter of it. And I remember one of the things that he was saying about it, it was like, for one, there's just a cost thing. And he's always been a guy who like, you know, I love to make movies as like he loves to make movies as simply as he can, Mm -hmm. you know, like just get the, you know, make the movie like without any of the sort of the bullshit, like as little bullshit as possible. Yeah. Um, and that was why he was such uh, a proponent of, of that move of that movement. Um, well, it's what launched his career. He wrote that book on how to make how to make movies that use car prices or something like that. Or so, yeah, I, I think can't that was which one it was. Or no, it was Rebel Without oh, Rebel, a Rebel Without, without a crew. crew. Yeah, yeah, Rebel Without I don't a Crew. No, if he shot that one on digital though. No, but, uh, but he talks about all mariachi. The, you know, it was filmed, but he talks about yeah. all the ways in which he uh, where he cut costs and the yeah. deals he made and stuff. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. But, but his kind of start was out of being able to do things with nothing. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that. I remember from this one talk that I saw him giving, it was, and I think it was when he did Sin City. And one of the things that he loved about it, and he says, I couldn't do this with film. He's just, he's like, I could just let the cameras keep rolling. Hmm. I could just let them roll and, and I could work with the actors like, and not cut the flow of what things were happening. I could like, things were allowed to happen spontaneously that weren't planned on because we weren't limited by that technical constraint of like, Oh shit, we got to watch how much film (laughs) stock we're rolling through, or we got to switch the cans on the, right. You know, like he could just, he could just film. Yeah. And so that, so there's a trade off there where it's like, okay, you know, and, and for him, it was a no question question thing for him because what was more important to him as an artist was his ability to get something out of actors that he didn't feel he was able to, to freely get before. Right. right? So I, it still comes down to you authentically as an artist, like, like what is the medium that you work best with and, and being able to try new things and, and take new things on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. Um, so I think the thing is, is like when we're talking about challenging the conventions is taking, taking kind of what's already kind of going and then pushing it a little bit. I think, um, you know, it's always risky being an early adopter. Um, because sometimes when you're being an early adopter, it's not going to work. Like I remember that movie with Johnny Depp, which, um, they tried to film with those, uh, with that really high frame rate that were, uh, what's that, you know, Oh, was that, and and they did that with, um, that Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah. The Hobbit. And it looks weird. Yeah. You know, and like, yeah, I know that went down pretty miserably. I don't yeah. know if they'll ever do it again. No, and <laughs> not for a there long was time. a few movies that were done that way. And, um, the, 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 the thing is there was people who are trying to like push that medium, but, um, 
it didn't really work because basically the science of why it didn't work was that our eye is not, doesn't actually refresh. Like in a sense, it's, it doesn't work this way in our eye, but our eye doesn't refresh that quickly. So when I look right to left really quickly, there's a blur between my yeah. vision. And in a film, when, because it's only 24 frames per second, there's a blur when you, when you swing the camera, just like when you swing your head. Um, but with this really high refresh rate, it, there's no blur. You see every detail in the turn and it's unnatural. And, um, I think this was a, a, a part of the conversation we were actually planning on getting to was authenticity. There's kind of a inauthentic element to this high refresh rate of, uh, um, and, and, and it looks, it looks false. And so our eye picks that up and, uh, for whatever reason, um, 24 frames per second in film is kind of a magic number because it's something where we all kind of feel, it feels yeah. very natural, feels very real. You could argue, and, and I just want to say this one last note, you could argue that people are just really used to 24 frames per second. Mm-hmm. I think that was the argument a lot of people are going with, Yeah, but we haven't really moved to this you know, higher frame rate, higher refresh rates, because most people still seem to like the more traditional way. So I think that's the convention. And I don't think we need to make the convention wrong, but we can try to push it. But if you, if you throw it out, it kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, this great book that I read a few years ago called the uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, yeah, which you, I think I've referenced, referenced that this a one few only times. a few yeah, times, a few times. <laughs> um, but you know, it presents this argument that, you know, there's, that we can acknowledge. And in my theory is this comes down to our own sense of truth. I think, which is even you sort of sort of touching on what you were saying there, but, uh, you know, he, he, the theory he proposed was that like, there's an, there's a quality to things that we, that, and that's both in objective and our subject, a subjective, you know, response to, to the world. But Qual like we can quality is reflected in each of those things. And for some reason we can collectively say that this thing is of greater quality to us as a gen as, as a greater whole than this option is, mm. you know, for whatever reason th- we generally seem to be able to do this as, as a world, you know, like we learn new information or we have new experiences. And for the most part, we can say, we like this, or for some reason we don't like this, you know, cause there's not really like, you know, you could argue so many points as to why, like, you know, this, the, the 45 frame rates, you know, like, and there's, there's all kinds of arguments. They're all somewhat meaningless in a, to a large degree, but for whatever reason, we still just seem to like 24 frames per second in a film. Yeah. We're just like, no, it's just, it's better. Yeah. It's just better. Like, <laughs> and, and there's so many art, you could make all the arguments in the world for or against and, and whatever, but that's just seems to be the census of, of all of that. So yeah, it's, there's, there's an element of quality and sometimes you try something new, it doesn't work. That was an instance of something not working, right? That was an instance of, well, I mean, I can't speak for the people who were involved and, and why that choice was made. But at the time it was like, Hey, no, this is, we think this might be the way of the future of, <laughs> of filmmaking. Yeah. And collectively most people just said, no, yeah, this is not the future of filmmaking. At least nobody has made it, has made it significant enough yet. 
Well, and that's, um, you know, that's where artistry meets industry. I mean, industry, uh, it didn't, it just didn't work in the industry of it, but from an artistry point of view, it, you know, you could say, well, that was, that was art. And if you really wanted to do that and that, that you believed in, I mean, that's the art part of it. And I think, um, you know, what this is kind of bringing attention to is we don't want to be worried about making a mistake. Sometimes I think when we're innovating, you know, every once in a while, or maybe sometimes in some cases, more often than not, it's not going to work, you know? And so that's part of the risk of innovating. That's part of the risk of trying something new. I, I personally think the safeguard against that is that you pay really close attention and you have a vast awareness of what is going on and what's been done. And I think that's why studying like, you know, art history and studying things of the past and just knowing about like knowing the history of film before you try to say reinvent how film will be done. You know, if you have a really good grasp on it, I think you have a better, better odds of taking a more, um, a more responsible risk with your art. I think if you kind of wing it, you know, like when you see these like, like 21 year old, 18 year old, just graduated film school situations. And they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to come out. I'm going to be the best filmmaker in the world. And and they're going to do something totally different. And they don't have that. They don't have the film history. They don't have the knowledge. They don't, they're not checking in with other people. It's all about them and their expression. That's all artistry and no industry. And you're basically playing a lottery and maybe it'll work out, but probably not. But I think when, when well, is it artistry or is it just pride and ego at that point? Well, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I think, I think that's where artistry gets poisoned when it is yeah. all pride and ego. But I think when you look at like the really top dogs, like, you know, the top filmmakers, they will do something innovative, like say James Cameron, but James Cameron has a, has a vast amount of experience, this very vast amount of knowledge about how the industry works and whatever. And so when he creates something like Avatar, it's not, it it almost doesn't even seem like a risk, even though it is, if you think about it, it was totally different. Yeah. And I think that's why someone, you know, why I would think that for myself, I think James Cameron is, is a kind of like a, and actually a very unique filmmaking artist in the industry. Like he's, you know, especially, and actually he was a guy who's like a really, who, who is really trying to like push the 45 frame movement as well. Like the next avatar movies might actually be released that way. And you know what? I'd actually be interested to see in, in what he would do with it because I mean, he's shown for me, at least he's proven himself to, to be able to show the potential of some of these technologies. Like, honestly, I think avatar is still the best 3d movie I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, do I, did I think it was like a brilliant film? No. But as far as kind of an experience of like bringing me into this world and showing me 3d in a way that I still have not seen anybody use 3d life of Pi was pretty good. Yeah. I thought life of Pi used 3d, but otherwise I think, and I've seen quite a few 3d films and I've just recently kind of started giving, giving that all up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I I like every single, almost every other time that I've gone, Oh, gravity was another one. Gravity was was great. Gravity was one of my favorite 3d movies. Yeah. Um, that one was exceptional for 3d in my opinion. And it, and it worked for it. It worked like, because you're out in space. Like it was, you needed that, you needed that. Yeah. Yeah, To give you a sense. Um, but you know, that's, that's a good, that's a really good point because gravity works so well because 
because you're in space and it's so vast, the closeness of something is actually really important. So 3d gives you that, that connect. And that's why I think it works so well. Whereas you take like some action movie and they're just trying to do it to make a few extra bucks. And it really doesn't matter if I see this cool shot of your gun, because it's kind of just to be cool. But with gravity, like you get a sense that the 3d actually is purposeful and important. And so I think that's like with these innovations, like with these, uh, new, new creativity, like options we have, um, you know, I don't think we, we want to do it just to do it, but to do it because it actually serves a purpose. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, when, when movies, because very rarely are movies, I feel made to be, are, were made for 3d. And, but those three movies that like I just listed, I know that those were all actually made with 3d in mind, Mm. like the way that they decided to like frame things, shoot things that was all built into it because, you know, some of my experience with, with, uh, movies that I've seen both in 2d and 3d, and I have generally liked them better in just standard 2d because I actually find that within 3d has a way of drawing your eye to whatever's closest to you. Hmm. So there's sometimes these really beautifully framed shots, like the whole thing, but you actually didn't see it because you were just looking at this one part of it. Hmm. And then suddenly you take that away and you've got this whole frame and suddenly it's like, I can see the whole picture now. Right. Um, whereas with some of these other movies like that were specifically made, with the 3d in mind, it's just like, that's, that was all considered, Hmm. you know, it was like where my eye was supposed to be drawn to, you know, or to just create a sense of, of space and depth into the image that was essential. That's my cat running around (laughs) chasing a wasp, chasing a wasp, (laughs) two of them. Oh, he's just having a heyday. Good luck, buddy. Be careful. Um, Um, but yeah, so it's, it's still, it, it ultimately comes down to, you know, it does, it really comes down to a certain authenticity about it, you know, is when the 3d is being used as just like, well, Hey, like it's to make, like it makes extra money. Like we can charge, you know, more for these and whatever it maybe brings, brings in a bit of an additional audience. I think people, I think, um, you know, there's, uh, and there's, there's, different types of art. There's different types of audiences. There's audiences who, um, they kind of just like the next cool thing in there. You know, I'd say, um, and I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not insulting anybody cause I'm lowbrow in certain areas in my life. Like when it comes to say, uh, you know, um, I don't know, art, like, uh, art as far as like paintings and drawings, I'm trying to expand my knowledge and awareness, but yeah. you know, I only know so much. So I'd say I'm a little more lowbrow. I won't appreciate little differences that someone who's really like invested their life in art. When it comes to movies, I'd, I'd like to say that I'm a little bit higher on the spectrum. I, I have a little bit more of an appreciation understanding, but I'd say that on the general like, um, market of, you know, um, at least movies and television, there's a lowbrow market, which is kind of the market, which is they kind of, um, they're willing to just kind of take in anything. And then when the next better version comes out, they'll keep buying it. Like for example, when star Wars released the first DVDs and then the enhanced DVDs and then the DVDs that were like this and like people are buying every version of it and getting rid of the old one. Cause they just have to have the next best one. Yeah. And then it's like a tin case and they need the tin case and whatever it needs to be. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's kind of the low brow part of, um, artistry. And it's good that that exists 
because that's as artists, that's, uh, and well, not really, we don't really get paid for it, but it does help justify making more art because um, there's money to be made from the merchandise and from the resales of it. But I think when we're, um, when we're really looking more for the experience and we're looking more to get like something out of the art that we take in, um, we are looking more beyond, uh, and, and we want more purpose in it. We want more yeah. point. And like, if you look at say like, um, the, the highest art doesn't make the most amount of money, um, by number, it makes the most amount of n- money by single purchase. So like, for example, a great piece of art sells once for millions of dollars, a uh, really kind of average piece of art sells a million times for a dollar. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a different way in which art and industry meet. And so I think what you and I are trying to talk about right now is we're talking about the higher end. We're talking about like, how do we make film better? But not to necessarily say that it's going to do better in industry and sell more because that's not necessarily what that part of the conversation is about. But yeah, like industry would be like, okay, we made a 2d movie. Let's make it 3d now. Okay. It was 3d. Let's make it 4k now. Okay. It's 8k now. Let's make it 8k. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like industry kind of wants to keep using the same material and pushing it further and further and further. Artistry wants to invent new material with purpose and point. And so this whole, I mean, maybe I'm rephrasing something, but this whole podcast, that's, these are the types of things we're trying to discuss. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and now like just the, and just sort of like bridge onto that a little bit. It's like, I, there's like these new theaters now that have like three screens. Like oh, really? they're like wraparound wow. screens. Yeah. I didn't the, know uh, that. The new star Trek you can, and apparently it's not for all of the movie, Okay. but certain segments of it, you have like this. So your main screen front, but now they've got like two other screens on the side. So you get like this wraparound wow. effect. So it's interesting. Cause it's like, this is another thing. I'm like, I don't know if that's going to be the next big thing. Yeah. You know, it, it may or, or may not instinctually. I'm kind of think thinking, I don't know if that's going to stick around. Yeah. If that well, will really have, I know they've done that with the video game industry with, um, racing games, like car games, oh, yeah, three yeah. screens. So you can actually look out the side of your car when you look at your right or, or left screen. Yeah. Um, and, uh, from, I've never played a game quite like that, but I've watched, uh, and it looks a lot better to me in that case, because when that, that was one of the things I always, I, I never like when I play a video game, when it's a racing game and I'm inside the car, I always feel frustrated because I have to like do something to like look over to my right or left. Yeah. Um, but I found it to be much more natural because I don't have to push a button. I literally can just look. And also my peripheral is picking that up. Yeah. So I think, um, I actually could see that one catching on because I think in certain cases, like we're in talking about, cases, it yeah. will work really well, but in other cases, it'll be this add on feature that you're like, I don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Completely. So it's like, it's almost like certain movies and certain bits of media will really benefit from that. Whereas other bits of media wouldn't like, like the three screen thing. Um, I could see benefiting in first person shooters, car racing games, stuff like that in, in, uh, movies like, movies where there's kind of like action going on all around you. I don't know, maybe, or, or if you want to kind of get like two conversations and make someone feel like they're in the middle of it where they have to look right and left, that could be really cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like all it does is just present sort of sometimes things just present new, new opportunities that, and new tools that may help you in communicating. Right. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, like what we're, we're talking about, it's like, you know, this, there's nothing right or wrong with 
with any of these sorts of new new developments or breakthroughs, quote unquote. Um, but it's it, it's all in how you you choose to use it and and the place where you're coming from with using it, you know, it's like, is is it because this will actually serve you like this, you know, having this extra wide frame with like these three screens or whatever, like if you're a filmmaker and you go, it's like, Oh my God, I have an idea that, or I had an idea that I never knew how this was going to work, but for whatever reason, this will make it work. Like I can do this now right? Then that's like, then that's amazing. That's great. Well, also, you know, um, I get two points. One is that the way we take in media is being much more personalized now. I think, uh, you know, we all kind of have our home theaters now, like at least, um, not everybody, but I think more modern culture is going towards the idea that we all have our own surround sound systems, our own media systems. We have video on demand. We have all that stuff. So we, we take in a more personalized experience of stuff. So we don't have to all take in our media the same way anymore. Like it used to be that everyone had to go to the theater to see the movie and we all had to watch it on the same screen and sit in the same theater essentially. But now we don't have to watch movies the same way. If you like it in 3d and I like it in 2d, we can both do that now. Like, um, you know, and just like, uh, when the VR thing comes along, some people want to experience it in VR. Some people might want to just experience it on a screen. And I actually would not be surprised if a lot of media is put out in multiple mediums that you can take in in different ways. And you might want to watch the movie in all different mediums. And you might, it might not be about what's better or worse, but just what's a different way to experience it. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and I, I remember one of my filmmaking mentors told me once, uh, just because you have the option doesn't mean you should use it. Meaning that if you we're talking about camera moves. Yeah. So it's just because you can crane the shot doesn't mean you should crane the shot just because you can do it. Like, and yeah. I think that's so important to remember because like, I think sometimes we go, Oh, I got this new technology. I need to use it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, well, and then you get obsessive with it and you use it like, and it takes away from it. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm sure within any industry, if you're on the other end of this, you know, whatever you're in, you can probably think of yeah. <laughs> somebody, yeah. somebody who's, who's done that, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's, this is some, what we're saying, this is making me think of uh, our last podcast that we had with, um, with, Matt. Yeah. Matt Gibbs with Matt Gibbs and architecture of art. Yeah. 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 The architecture of, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The art of art. No, no, no. The architecture of art. Um, and you know, and, and this concept that he presented about looking at sort of the authenticity of the space that he was developing before he put anything of him into it, it was like, well, what is the space asking for? What is the, what does this need? What serves the, the community that this is going into, you know, like taking these factors in. And I thought that that, like, that was just brilliant to me. Like I never really for, it was one of those things that hit me and I'm just like, I feel like I already know this somehow. Right. But I know this is like the first time I'm ever, I'm really consciously engaging with it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just thought that it it was just such a, a terrific example of, of kind of getting yourself out of the way mm-hmm. out of creating something, not being so attached to, to this thing, you know, it, like this thing is, is not you, it's removed from you. And in order to serve it best is you need to actually take a look at it. When we become so possessive of something, 
you know, and she's like, this is mine. This is, this is my thing. Uh, we're so close to it that we, we don't often see what it needs. Right. You know, as opposed to saying like, okay, this is, there's this thing, there's this project, there's this, there's a script, there's this song, there's this painting that has entered my awareness, right? That it sort of already exists already on its own. It's come to me and now I just need to see what that needs. How do I give this what it, what it needs to be all that it can be? Right. And, and I think this is somewhat what we're talking about. It's like, okay, so when it comes to conventions of, of film and, and the more as we're talking about this, the more ambiguous this all is starting to feel for me <laughs> because <laughs> well, I'm like, well, hold, well, hold on. And so what does it even mean to like break the conventions or, or going beyond the conventions? Like, okay, you know what? It, it is keeping an eye on to a degree of, of the new things that we can do. And, and to a large degree, technology is a part of that. And our new awarenesses are a part of that. Um, but it still ultimately comes down to, well, what does this need for it to be fulfilled in the best way possible? And it's like, you know what? Yeah, there's these new, you know, there's, there's 3d, there's this new three screen thing and blah, blah, blah. But actually it doesn't need that. In fact, to do something like that would, would take away from it. That's not what this project is, requires. Right. Right. You know, maybe it just requires something that's more simple. Maybe it requires the, the things that have already been long established, but being aware of that, being completely open to say yes or no to all of these things and not necessarily be pulled by, by fads in that way. And then you are so completely openly available to be true to whatever this thing is that you're creating. You know, I think, um, when you have a new technology that gets introduced into the market of, of whatever artistic medium you're in, I think, um, there's a sense of wonder. I mean, at least I find this for myself as, as a self-proclaimed artist, um, is that I want to try it out. I want to, I want to see what I can do with it. Yeah. I want to play with it. Um, and so I think, um, if, if we come from that place and we don't come from like, Oh, I need to make the best film with this new technology or best whatever. Um, we, we come at it with a curiosity and a sense of play and a sense of exploration. And I think we'll end up finding something that we can do with it. That's really unique. I think if we try to force something through a, uh, a certain way where it's not necessarily from that place of, of wanting to find out, wanting to discover, but we're like, you know what? Movies that are made in 3d are making more money right now. So let's make this 3d, you know what I mean? Or let's make this uh, three screened or whatever the hell it is, right? Three, this, three, that yeah. 3d three whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> three, let's add a three to it. Let's make it a third one. We'll, we'll do the other two, we'll do the other two, yeah. or whatever, you know, but if every time I think we try to do something like that and, and we let industry run, um, it's too much and, and it kills the art. It, it, it suppresses it and it, it really limits it. And I think it becomes, that can convention. create resentments too. Yeah, totally. And it becomes a cliche of the art, you know, it's like, and I, I remember that happened after Avatar. I remember there's all these 3d movies that came out and it was like, this is not the same experience. What the hell is this? And then, yeah. um, I remember, uh, starting to realize they did this 3d in post, like they, they did it and then they did post 3d. So they just cut the images and separated them later. And it had this inauthenticity to it. And it was like, 
what the hell is this? And I almost like was like, I'm never going to see a 3D movie again. Like, this is junk. You know what yeah. I mean? And I and, paid an extra six bucks to see yeah, it. Or whatever, right? <laughs> and it was a joke. And that's where, um, you know, that's where technology uh, or innovation gets abused, you know? And I think, um, you know, it's a really interesting thing you're talking about, this three screen. I think the three screen thing can relate to anything, but not all movies are clearly going to be good for the three screen. Just like not all movies need the 3d and, and not all movies are going to need the VR. But I think what happens is that like, if you can take a movie that works like and say right now, 2d and you can say, you know what? We couldn't do something because it didn't have the three screen or we couldn't do something because it didn't have the 3d. Let's, let's use that and let's put it through that medium and, and try to find those enhancements so we can get that experience. But yeah. I think if we do it from an industry place where it's like, I know we're focused on movies, but if we do it from an industry place where like we could make more money if we make this 3d or three screen or VR, I think you miss the whole point of why you would even do it. Yeah. You know, the technology becomes abused. It becomes uh, manipulated to make money as opposed to used to actually enhance the art. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, and you can apply this to all sorts of things like, you know, just like, I'll, I'll go with music because that's my sort of my next, sure. <laughs> my next go-to as, as far as something I can have some sort of, I have some sort of a relationship with, but you know, just like even with the music that I, I listen to, like I, there's certainly certain sounds that I gravitate towards, you know, like I love, you know, blues, classic rock, you know, uh, like folk stuff, like really sort of like organic sounds, right? Um, or just, yeah, something that's got like this, uh, a certain quality to it for me. With that said, you know, especially in the summertime, I get into these certain genres, you know, like I love stuff like, uh, like chill wave and a lot of these like sort of sun soaked <laughs> synth, you know, synthesizer sounds. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and I love that stuff. And they're, almost complete opposites, you know, from, from what I listen to. But for me, it's like, well, what is the feeling that it's creating? You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, if it creates a feeling in me, then it's kind of done its job. It doesn't matter how, how it was achieved, right? Like they, and you can tell the authenticity in the musical artist because of those, those choices. I think a lot of people don't think about that with music. It's just like, well, I don't know. They just put this shit together and (laughs) whatever. It's like, there's like these things, hopefully were really well thought about, you know, it's just like, Oh, we're trying to create, you know, this song is trying to create a, a, you know, for example, like a, a feeling of just like freedom and space and just like, you know, sitting on the beach, it's like, okay, well let's not use this. Let's, you know, create this effect and we'll use this and we'll use this and we'll, and we'll find the music within these instruments, right? Mm-hmm. They're all just tools, right? But you don't necessarily use them for everything right? It's, it's whatever, whatever will help fulfill the vision the best for what you want it, want your audience to, how you want your audience to receive it, right? What, what kind of experience do you want to give the tools then like you can't, there's nothing, there's no fault of the tools themselves. They just are what they are. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's not good or bad. It's just, it's all in the person who uses it. Right. You know, it's interesting, uh, you're talking about this, um, one of my friends went to Ibiza, and Ibiza's like a big kind of clubbing, nightclub scene this time of year. Oh, yeah. And uh, they apparently have DJs that they basically do twice a week, and and they do these things for whatever. And and, uh, anyway, um, 
we were talking a bit about electronic dance music and, um, you know, I hadn't really been a fan of any type of electronic dance music, m- music until a couple of years ago. And it was when I went to Pemberton and, and particularly this year when I went to Pemberton music festival, where I really gained a certain kind of respect for it. I could see why a lot of people don't really appreciate it because they kind of look at a DJ and they see them up there, you know, putting music together that somebody else's and whatever. But at Pemberton, there is a few DJs, like they, they're getting the top people, um, who put stuff together that was, uh, just really, really well thought out. Like, for example, there is this one, um, who I forget, um, at the moment, but they did this thing where you're listening to this music, right? And then all of a sudden it would go into like some emotional kind of song, almost like an Adele like type of song. Yeah. And, but it would have a little bit of a beat in it, but not much, but it was, it was enough to kind of keep you moving, keep you dancing, but it had this real emotional hit to it. Right. And then the music would go into that and then it would pick up and it would go into this kind of more of a, a dance, but that depthy part informed the next part so well that you felt that emotion, that depth and that, that almost that sadness, um, that she so does so well in her music, but you felt it in this really happy kind of song, but you felt the depth of it. And it was yeah. like, you're like, wow, like the, I never would have heard this song that way had they not designed it and, and transitioned it yeah. this way. There's another, uh, another DJ, which it's unfortunately I remember this one's name. I don't remember the other at the moment. Maybe I will, but, uh, called girl talk. And they take a bunch oh, of, yeah. uh, they take a bunch of like hit songs, but they mix them together in certain ways. And I heard songs girl that talk's I, just one guy. I thought, yeah, just I guess one so. dude, I think, I think yeah. so. Yeah. But you know, anyway, they have a dance group up there. Oh, okay. It's, it's fun, whatever. But anyway, um, the way he mixed, uh, um, certain songs, which had a beat, which I never really liked that song so much before, but then with the beat that was combined with it, with the lyricist, like it was so good, you know? And so, um, I think that, that that's kind of an innovation of a song, you know, like, and so I found that, um, when people are really putting a mindfulness into it, you get that. And I think when people aren't, you get the other thing, which people sometimes refer to as like Euro trash music or something, you know, like where it's like, it, it's just kind of, uh, 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 you know, like, yeah. Oh, in some, in some sort of token line of, of yeah. some kind. And you know what? You, and, and it's funny cause people use the term Euro trash, but I mean, it's like in terms of that style of music, the reason why they call it Euro trash is because like Europeans like to dance all night to electronic dance music, but like we get cut off at two. So <laughs> right. I think that's why they got the Euro dance. I think that's where it came from, you know, cause yeah. it's EDM. You listen to it all night, you stay up all night and then, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean like, cause, but the thing is that like, you know, I, I used to listen to a lot of like, you know, at the time before it was called like EDM, you know, it was like when it was just like trance and trance and house and all the different offshoots of that and stuff. But, uh, you know, there was, there was definitely like, for whatever reason, although some of the sounds were very similar, some stuff was just shit. Right. You're just like, this is crap. And it's because you know, there was a, there was just something kind of token right. about it. You're just like, well, there's not really anything genuine or authentic about it. It's just like, yeah, you're saying something that was popular in an, in a, another song that was popular probably because it was authentic. And now you're sort of copying that right. somehow. And, and, and there's no real, uh, original voice in there or something that's lending something new to it. Um, so I, I, I think that's, 
I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of things that factor into that. And that's just one musical genre. I mean, it's for like so much of, of club music. I don't listen to too much, like a a lot of modern sort of club music these days, but every now and then when I hear, uh, like every now and then I will just throw on like, um, on like my, uh, Google play, like on one of the playlists or something or on Spotify, I'll be like, what's like hot this week. Right. Yeah. And you just hit the play and like, all right, what's, I'm like, what's everybody listening to right now? What's popular in, you know, our country right now. And, you know, and there's, and it's great because there's some interesting stuff. Like every now and then I'm like, oh, there's some really cool sounds that are happening right now that, that are sort of speak to a certain sort of feeling that's, that's going on. But then there's stuff that I'm just like, well, this is just tired, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like it's like, I swear to God, if I hear one more song where there's some dude singing about the way a woman moves her booty on the floor, (laughs) I'm, I swear I'm going to lose my shit, man, because I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care because I've heard that so many times. Mm -hmm. Like, give me something original. Give me something like, tell me something different about a woman that you saw on a dance floor. Totally. Please. For the love of God. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, (laughs) I love that. My, my point, um, my point about the electronic dance mix, the EDM is, uh, that, uh, I think there's, there is kind of a, generalization that sometimes gets put on it by people who aren't interested in it or, or there's a judgment. And I think, um, when it's done really well, there's an appreciation to really be had for it. Um, when it's done very cliche, like what you're talking about, of course, you're not going to want to listen to that because you're going to be like, but I don't, I just think we need to not paint it all by the same brush. And I think that doesn't just go for EDM music that goes for everything because, you know, um, there are, you know, there are always copycats out there. There's always people exploiting, um, something that was actually originally innovative and creative. Um, but I think that in all mediums, the reason why they exist is because someone innovative and creative who challenged, um, these things is, is who's really like, that's why people get involved with it. You know, like, um, at just at Pemberton this year, I could see why people were so pumped about electronic dance mix. Um, last year I did too, but this year in particular, I really got why, but you know, it's like, I'll bring this back to video games. I remember when I played the first modern warfare that came out for PlayStation three, was it? I think. Yeah. Anyway. And it was such a great experience. You know, it was like first person shooter. It was like nothing had ever really, really been done before at the time. It seemed gritty, like as far as what a first person shooter was, um, the story was really compelling and all the bits you go through. So after I beat that game and like, and I just played it enough, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go out and buy a bunch of other first person shooters, which I was never really into until that game came along. And I bought them and I'm like, these are crap. I'm like, these are just not even comparable. And, um, and I, and I told my friend about it. He's like, he's like, yeah, like this move, this game is really innovative. Like it's really something special. And I was like, okay, I really appreciated it. But I never really was into first person shooters before because they didn't, in my opinion, didn't have that innovation. But once this innovation came and then after modern warfare, modern warfare, this modern warfare, that like all these copies. And now there's certain versions that were like really special 
but like now things are starting to become a carbon copy of everything else and they're not so special anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think like what ends up happening is, is like someone needs to come along and have an innovation, you know, and we're still on the game of, uh, video games. Um, you know, Drake's, uh, fortune, what was that? Um, uncharted. uncharted. Yeah. Yeah. The uncharted series, every time they come up with a new game, it's to me, extremely innovative and extremely like, like a new experience, like every time. Yeah. Whereas uh, another franchise I really loved, I still love it, but it's lost its way with me a little, was Assassin's Creed. Mm. You know, they made the first one, which was super innovative, but kind of repetitive. Then the second one was like, they solved that. It was like, boom, this game is awesome. But then after two kind of happened, it seemed like they just kind of started copying that and it never really innovated again. And so I started to, and I kept buying them and I'm like, this is the same game over and over and over again. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it, it comes down to, it, I think experience really is the big word here when it yeah. comes to creating art. Like I remember the first, the first screenwriting book that I read was, um, how to write a great movie by Jeff Kitchen. Okay. Uh, and one of the first things like before, like you've even start to lay down like anything about like your log line of, you know, okay, this is what the story's about. Like any plot point or whatever, it was like, what do you want the audience to walk out of the theater feeling? What is the experience you want to give to people? Hmm. And I, I think, you know, it's something that because sometimes those early steps are, are looked at as being like the least significant, they're not at all. Like they're just, that is so crucial to the whole picture of all of it, because otherwise, what are you doing it for? Mm. You know, like what is, what is the experience you want your audience to have with this work? Right. You need to have some idea of what that is because otherwise you're going to completely lose sight. Like even it's more important sort of at that stage, like on that foundational level, it's more important than having your theme set up for writing a script. Yeah. It's like, how do you want, like, what is the experience you want to give? And it doesn't matter what, what medium you're in. If you're a musician, if you're a painter, if you make video games, you know, because video games, I feel is such an interesting avenue these days. It's, I, I find it's, I think that because it actually, when you look at video games, like how long they've been around, like in comparison to film and television, which are also quite new mediums when you think about it in terms of a grand, like sort of perspective, like when you think of how long painting has been around, mm-hmm. you know, like doing portraits and landscapes and that like centuries, right. Um, films only been around for what over just over like a, years. like a hundred years, maybe No. Yeah. I mean, t- well, technically, and I mean, really like it kind of started in the twenties, really. I mean, and you, you almost, it's even hard to say, like, did it really start before that? I mean, some people will say it yeah. did, but like, you know, and then even before it was commercial, like, you know what I mean? And like, I was thinking about that with video games and like video games, what they started in the eighties, didn't they? Technically. I think like, like some of the early ones were in the seventies, Okay. like at some point in the seventies, but yeah, the point is they haven't been around for that long, even yeah. though there's been a lot of advancements and there's been a lot of people who've, who have adopted these, this type of experience. Right. Um, but I mean, it's, yeah, it, it still comes down to, well, what is the experience that you want to give? And when it just comes down to 
doing things that you think are kind of cool or, you know, just being a source of some mindless entertainment, right? Then I think that you, you can start to get in trouble at that point, unless that's maybe part of the experience you want to create. You're like, yeah, I don't want people to think I want people to just sit down and they can play this for like five minutes in between, like, (laughs) you know, then, then yeah. Okay. Now you craft based on that experience. If you want to create like some type of an immersive story driven experience and that like, and you want your audience to feel a certain way, then that's what you do. But you've got to be, you know, to, I think it's, it's important to be deliberate about that, to, to be aware of that as you are creating it. Right. Yeah. I think it's something to definitely keep in mind. I, I, um, I'm trying to think if I've ever come up with a story where I knew what experience I wanted them to have, I guess kind of, I, I always have, but I haven't really been able to pinpoint it until a certain point in the creative process. Cause usually I find for myself when it comes to creating a movie, it usually either starts with a character or a situation or an idea or some kind of like question, like what if this happened or something. And then after that, then I find that there's a, there's kind of an unfolding that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like that question. And I think it's something to ask yourself throughout the entire process because, and to keep remembering to ask yourself because it, it helps, um, it, you know, I think it helps get your mind off of you and like what you're creating as an artist, you know, like, yeah. um, cause I think it's very easy as an artist to sometimes start thinking that it's all about you and well, I have to create this. I see this all the time with clients and stuff where I have to create this great script, you know, like, it's like, well, why? Like, like, what does that even mean? Like, why do, why does anyone have to create a great script? Why not just tell a story? Because I think what happens is that's where industry starts to take us away from our originality because we get so conventional. Like, it's like, well, I got to do something that's great. I got to do something people like, I got to do whatever. But like, I just coached, uh, this one guy, he wrote his first feature and, um, he's, uh, you know, he's already got interest from a proof of concept he created. So, you know, we're moving forward. And, um, he was just like, yeah, he's like, I wrote this first piece, uh, this first thing. It's a piece of shit. He's like, but it's like, he's like, I feel so good because now that it's done now I'm actually free to start working on it. But like, and, 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 and I'm so glad that he embraced that idea because it really is truly freeing. Like once you get it done, then you can start to kind of figure out what you're going to do with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that once you're done your first draft, it's such a great time to really like ask yourself that question. Like again, yeah, you know, because that's a time where you can go like, cause I've, you know, and I've talked about this before, but I've literally just erased my whole script and wrote it again. But the thing is, you always know you had the script done. Like once you have it done, you never have to worry about getting it done anymore. Like that kind of worry is over. Right. So now when you, I find when I rewrite it, I'm like, well, if at any point I don't like this draft, I can just abandon it because I already have a draft done. You know what I mean? So it's all good. A working draft. But the thing is, is I've found that with rewriting, I found that I always like my rewrites more after the fact. Yeah. Um, and I know you've experienced this as rewriting while you're during the process. I think, um, you, you create too much complexity on yourself. You know what I mean? I think that's what, what, I mean, we we all do. We all create too much complexity on ourselves by, by rewriting while we're, when we haven't finished yet, because we can overthink it. 
You know? Well, and we have too high of an expectation on ourselves yeah. at that point too in, yeah. in the process. And I mean, I, part of what you just, what this is leading me to, I'm like, Oh great. <laughs> I was like, now, now I'm going to jump on the, on the education system <laughs> pedestal here. But yeah, no, I, and I think I touched on this on another podcast a few weeks ago or something, but you know, basically that a lot of it, like, yeah, like there's, there's a degree to which like, you're not allowed to do that in the education, in the education system, you know, like when you're in, in, especially like uh, for myself, I think of high school, especially, you know, it's like, you know, you don't, you don't get to do that. You don't get to just do a first draft and come back at it later. Right. Like, no, it's like, you've got to, you've got to create something as close to perfect as possible the first time around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know. It it is arguable about there being some value in that, you know, it's just like do the absolute best you can possibly do, you know, on one pass on this thing. But then, you know, there's always so much pressure on it because it's like, well, the best you can do is now going to be graded. Somebody is going to take a look at, especially when it was something like, like English class and it was a creative writing assignment, you know, you're putting yourself and somebody's going to judge it yeah. and put a grade on it. You know, like it's just, it's like, Oh my God, like this has got to be good. This has to be something intriguing and provocative and whatever. And like, and the subject matter was something that was told to me as opposed to something I came up with on my own. Right. right. Um, which again, arguably can force you to be creative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's, there's a little give a little take with all of that, I guess, is but what you, I'm, what I'm yeah. coming to with that. It's like, okay, yeah, you learn some things, but there's some probably not so great things you're learning at the same time, like behavioral things that you're learning at the same time with that. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, also like we, um, we don't have to, you know, we, we can try things out in life. I mean, you know, I like about Pixar uh, they'll go and they'll make these little shorts and they'll try them out. And if people really like them, they'll be like, let's make a whole movie out of that. Or let's consider developing that, you know, like it's, uh, um, or they'll just make little offshoots and try little things that are funny, you know? And I think, um, you know, there's, it it seems like there's kind of this all or none in, in a lot of ways in the way we treat art. And it's not really like that. I mean, art is always a work in progress. And I think anybody that's a professional artist will say that, that they've never felt like whatever they've done is complete. You know, there's, and then the moment it's released to the world, they could always do it better. I mean, like Scorsese says that everybody says that Jennifer Lawrence says that about her performances. I ne- I feel like she said, I feel like I don't find the character until the end. Benicio del Toro said the same thing, I believe. Um, you know, so like, I think as artists, if, we're always handing in a work in progress. And the moment we start to embrace that idea, we can start to be a little bit easier on ourselves. But I think the school system um, does try to teach us that you're handing in a final product. And it's like, nothing is a final product. You know, nothing really is. Everything is in process of being better. And I think if we looked at the world as more as how, how are we innovating and helping, we would look at it as like, okay, well, I in, I can innovate this in this little tiny way and it's not perfect. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it creates one little innovation and helps it. Then the next person comes along and they create a little innovation and the next person, and then pretty soon after we all contribute, 
we've all put in all these innovations. We have something really amazing and magical, but like no one person comes along and invents everything all at once. It just doesn't work that way. There's scientists working on this technology. There's someone else trying to apply it to this medium. There's another person putting it through a story filter, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like, by the end of the day, many people contribute to this ultimate great innovation. And so I think, um, you know, I think it is part of our mindset with conventional thinking, the way that we've been taught to thinking. We, I, and I say this every podcast, we have to break it because you will never be the person. And this is like, okay, just as a human being where you never will know everything. You will never have the final product. Like the best movie that was made at one period of time is the best at that time. Someone's going to come along and they're going to make a better movie because they're going to have an innovation to work from. And hopefully yeah. they do. They damn well better. Yeah. Just like art and just like anything else, like a, like a piece of art or music. And you can, you can argue nostalgia and say, no, music was best at this time. But people took that, used it to learn from, and then advanced upon it. And with uh, just electronic dance mix, they'll take music that was really popular at one time and really worked at that time. They'll take modernized music today and they'll combine the two. And, and I've experienced it where I felt arguably it was better because they took, you know, and so who's to say one was better. They innovated it. They innovated both and they made it kind of special and unique. So, um, I think the point that we're, I think we're getting to in this podcast is that innovation is challenging conventions and also that we are, innovation is, is, is incrementally helping something. It's not about reinventing it or making it different. And, and although sometimes it might be, but it's never about the final thing, you know, like whatever anyone's done with virtual reality right now, they've, they've only opened the door. That's it. They have not done the best stuff because that's how innovation works. Someone's going to take what's built and they're going to make it better. And that's how we advance as a human race. Yeah. We look at, at, what's been done and we look at what could potentially be done with it. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a lot of things that you, you can do, but again, it's maybe not necessarily the best thing to do. Right. Right. And, and that's ultimately where our personal choice comes into it. You know, like our, our decisions is to, again, this is bringing me, I feel like I'm just going in a circle here, but (laughs) it comes back to just like, well, what's ultimately, going to be the best thing for this? What's going to ultimately deliver the experience that you want, want people to have with this thing? And you know what? Maybe you'll miss the mark a little bit, you know, or maybe you won't, maybe you'll, you'll do something or, or maybe it won't be amazing, but people will still appreciate, you know, a certain part of it. And maybe somebody will build upon that, right? and it'll become something else and, and it will inspire somebody else to do, to do something further with, with it. Something I was thinking about recently was, was just about how, when we look back on our history, you know, like of accomplishments and stuff, you know, like how at the time we, we credit the people who did them you know, we cry. It's like, Oh, this person discovered this, this person was the first person to have done something like this or whatever. We, we acknowledge that. And like, as if this person did it, but when you look back on history, like the way we look back on 
those sorts of events for their time, we don't necessarily look at them as being a specific person who did them. We actually sort of look at them as being like, no, we did it. Hmm. Humanity did it. <laughs> like right. we all did it. And there's a weird truth to that. Yeah. Right. Like there's a weird sort of like, you know, they didn't land, like, it wasn't just one person who landed on the moon. It was a collective of people who did that. And those people were in the position they were because somebody else had a thought about what if we did something like that. Mm-hmm. And that all, like, it's all like the conditions are created for those things to be created. And that's, and that's a, a massive societal cultural thing Yeah, that we've done. So it's in, in some ways that takes some of the pressure off. <laughs> yeah. You know what I really like about what you're opening up here is the holistic side of innovation, you know, and creation and achievement and accomplishment is, uh, you know, I think, um, we, uh, also, and I, I'd say I even blame media and movies for this, um, uh, as the culprit of trying to teach us that there's heroes, that there's one person who did it all, you know? And I think we walk into the world and at least I know I did when I was a young man, walk in the world thinking that I have to do it all on my own. I have to be the guy. I have to be the one. And I, um, you know, and I think uh, many of us, although I'm not going to, I don't know if I can speak for anybody else, but I have witnessed it in other people where they seem to have, um, I think we all do this, at least in first world country in North America a lot, that we need to be the one to do it. And I think um, fame and the way fame has been done and the way uh, people have been kind of exploited as focus points, you know, good or bad, you know, um, even when, uh, the military is, has it, has an enemy, they always pick someone like bin Laden or Saddam Hussein or whoever, you know, someone bad. Right. And there's always a person and it's like, it's not just a person, like there's a whole thing, you know, and we were talking about this, like with, uh, you know, George Bush. Right. And it's like, well, everyone kind of points at George Bush, but then there's all the people surrounding George Bush and then all the people surrounding them. And there's this whole, like, there's a whole thing going on, right? Well, I mean, and eventually the thing is like, if you keep going down, you, when you break it down, you, you ultimately do come to the conclusion. It's like, well, we all sort of created this situation. Yes. Like all of us did. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, my, yeah, my point is, is like, I think what you're really, you're really pointing out here is really, really valuable is recognizing the holistic side of, of, of art and creation and challenging conventions, because it's not just you, we're all doing this together and we're all a part of it. And I think that's where vision comes in because I think when someone comes along, who's daring enough and bold enough to have a vision, they might get recognized as a hero, as a leader, but, um, and, and, but your job as a, as the leader is to enroll everyone else in, in with you because, no one person changes the world. Like, you know, you could say, um, Gandhi, right? Like Gandhi still needed everyone else behind him for that to work. Right. Like, so, but I think what happens is we, we put too much, um, too much value on the person who is at the front as though they did it themselves. Not that they're not value. Cause, cause not that they're not valuable. Cause they're the visionary. They're the one that led, they're the one that stood out and they, and we should recognize them and, and, and tribute them for that. But that we should not delude ourselves into believing that they did it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole lone wolf strategy, I, it's just bullshit. It's just, it does. The world just does not work that way. You know, um, I really don't think anyone does anything really great alone. I, I, I yeah. really don't. Well, I mean, even, uh, Gandhi, I'm going to miss, 
quote this, but like, you know, cause Gandhi was a guy who was, was sort of a living example of, of, or, or at least I think it's almost a misinterpretation because I don't think Gandhi would say, would ever say that he did anything alone. <laughs> right. Obviously we can't verify that, but <laughs> I think we can have a general, we can probably agree to that for the most part that he would say, Oh, I, I did not do this alone. Right. And one of his, um, his sort of his, his supporters, you know, cause Gandhi was out putting out messages of peace and, and, you know, of, of not being sort of a society minded on, you know, stepping over each other and, and, you know, being harmful to each other. But one of his backers was, or one of his supporters was an extraordinarily wealthy person. And he said something like, it cost me a fortune to keep Gandhi, (laughs) like, in you know, in, in poverty or something like that. Like it just like he invested a lot of money in him Mm. basically to keep Gandhi in the position that he was able to be in Mm. right? for Gandhi to not have to, you know, work a job kind of thing to like pay his bills. Like this guy basically did all of it. Right. Mm. Um, but no one knows his name. No, I, I, his name's out, but yeah, I, oh, I guess I see what your point is. Yeah. Well, I can't think, saying, of, like, I can't I don't think know of his name. name. So that's, that's enough. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's, I think that's the thing, you know, one thing I've learned in the last few years and in my twenties, I believed that, um, I mean, I'm only fresh in my thirties, but for most of my life, I believed you lead, lead it from the front. That's how I was taught. I've since learned that that is not true, that you lead from the back. True leaders lead from the back. They don't, um, they're not the ones like the real leaders of the world. The people who really create change are often the ones you don't know their names for um, good or bad, for good or bad, <laughs> for good or bad. Yes. But the best leaders, um, don't need to be the face. They don't need to be the front. And, um, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that innovators are always at the, f- not in the back because sometimes innovators are in the front, but you know, when it comes down to brass tacks and getting something done and getting it made, you'll often find that it's people who were behind the scenes that got it done. You know, like it's like, uh, in a film, the director's usually at the front and everyone knows who the director is, but the producer, the production manager, um, people behind the scenes, they're usually the ones that actually got it made and they created the light for that director or actor to shine in. And I think as artists, that's part of our, our humility that we need to recognize. Like, even if you're a movie star and you're the most famous person in the world, um, every movie, uh, began way before that actor, that actor was involved. Well, my cat is going nuts. (laughs) He's after that bug. Whoa. (laughs) Um, so anyway, uh, I wish you were here to see that everybody. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) it's great. but, But, um, but usually a producer came along and believed in this idea or the studio believed in this idea. They got it made and they started thinking about who could they get attached. And then they started getting the director and the actors attached. So I think is, especially when we're in the film industry, and this is just my focus, but I think I want to point this out. And I think it refers to every industry. Usually someone created it who not everybody necessarily recognizes which gave us all the opportunity to be a part of. And although we might get the recognition, we, we always must remember we're not the people that 
do it alone, unless we're the ones who create the idea in the first place and get it off the ground and produce. So, um, you know, and, and really like the true leaders of, of, um, of a show is like a showrunner or the producer or the production manager, you know, it's, and then you could even argue that, you know, the, the crew and stuff, but you know, this is where things are led from. So our whole concept of leadership and actually getting something done and made, um, you know, it's not always about who's getting recognition and who's in the limelight. And I like this point that you pointed out about holistic, because I think the holistic point points out that there are more people than just who's in the limelight. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we walk around in our lives as though we're in the limelight because we think mostly about ourselves on average. Um, so we are the star of our own lives, our own movies. So we kind of see ourselves as a star, but I think there's a problem in that sometimes when we see ourselves as a star, we don't see that there's people that have helped us to be the star. Like yeah. for example, it doesn't matter how crappy your parents are. Um, in some ways, in some ways, no matter what, if they gave birth to you, they helped you to be who you are. So hate them if you want, but at the same time, even, even our enemies, you know, even our, even the worst, most toxic people in the world, in a way we have to remember that they help us in some way, you know, yeah. like, and hopefully you love your parents, they've, but they've you know. served, <laughs> they've served you in some way. Like they've reflected something to you about something that you like or dislike. Yeah. You know, um, and then you can make, make a decision. Um, or in a, there's a great book called care of the soul by Thomas More, And, uh, he's like a, he's like a psychiatrist and, or psychologist. Um, I don't know if he can prescribe drugs or not, but, uh, he wrote this book and he was, one of the points that he was making in it was that, you know, cause he sees a lot of people and, and, you know, parents obviously come up, right. <laughs> you know, in, in doing psychological treatment, uh, with people. And, uh, what he likes to tell, sort of his, his patients or clients or whatever, that your parents don't make you who you are. They provide you the materials with which you make yourself. I love that. That's a great quote. Yeah. Yeah. I might've slightly misquoted that, but that was the idea that he was presenting. Um, yeah, that gives you the idea. And I was, I, yeah, I always liked that. I'm like, that's, that's really good. And like, it's still, it's still a choice. Hmm. you know, and I, I think that actually starts to eke out into everything else we've been talking about here in terms of like, you know, challenging conventions of things like that. Right. It's just like you, it just, there's just, sometimes there's new materials for which you, you build with, you know, it's, but it's ultimately your, your decision. Well, it's a, it's an interesting point too. Um, just when you, the, the way that quote goes is that, just because there's other people who contribute to our lives, I don't think we're entitled to expect that anyone's here to come and save us or help us either. Um, sometimes we have to step up and we have to put the pieces together ourselves. Um, you know, no, like the world is not fair. Like not everybody gets the same, uh, lottery tickets, you know, like, um, and by lottery tickets, I mean, some people are born into a super rich family and call that a lottery ticket or call it a, you know, 
uh, call it a blessing or call it a curse, you know, whatever. But we're not all born with the same opportunities and the same chances. And we're not all born in the same places with, you know, um, the same, uh, uh, just whatever. doesn't matter. You name it, right? There's all sorts of things that make things not fair. But I think with whatever materials we have, we have to work with that. But I think any way in which we kind of seclude ourselves from others, where we try to separate ourselves, we do ourselves a major disservice and we create an individualism and we create a separatism. And that is really, I think, what holds us back. Um, Because now I'll just say that there are certain people that I've encountered in my life that in my opinion, they're not bad people because in their own justification, I can understand where they're coming from, but they're absolutely toxic to me. And maybe to someone else, they're not. But for me, they're toxic, toxic in the sense that they're negative and they're always pointing out problems, they're always pointing out faults, no contribution. Um, Maybe they're uh, also like they, they, there's certain things where I've encountered with people where they're just unwilling to adapt, unwilling to change. They want everything to stay the same. They don't want anything to change because it's comfortable for them. That's a really toxic person to me. They mean well. In, in, in many ways, I can see what they're going for. And I could see myself doing that. Mm-hmm. But because I'm someone who says, no, I want to grow. I want to innovate. I want to change. I want to evolve. Um, if I'm so- around someone that wants to stay stagnant, change, they're, they're scared of change. They're scared of new people. They're scared of whatever. Um, and their insecurities come out of that. They, they're not a bad person, but it's toxic. And so my point is, is that for all of us, some people do not align with our value systems. It does not make them bad. And we, I don't think we want to go out and make them wrong and say they're evil or they're bad or they're whatever, Mm -hmm. but we just want to go, okay, right now at this time in our lives, this person and I do not align and that's okay. We don't need to hang out together. Being like, like I think of myself as a bit of a humanitarian. I'm not like, I'm not like way up there with, you know, humanitarians. But I I like to think like, I like to think of myself as a humanist, someone who cares about people, an empath. But at the same time, I'm not here. I'm not someone who I believe was put on the world on the earth to save everybody. Like some people I believe might have that mission, you know, but for me, I look at it. And if you're not, if that's not your mission, I think you need to connect and go, okay, well, who do I want to surround myself? Who's the best people? But I think what happens is when we make people bad or wrong, we create a separation from them and they can no longer help us because I've met people who I would say are toxic for me, but they've still helped me. They've helped me realize something about myself. So I'm thankful to them. I don't say they're bad and I miss them in some ways because I say, man, I wish we could hang out. But in certain ways, it's not going to work because yeah. it just doesn't work. It doesn't align. You know? Well, it's like sometimes people, you know, they, they provide lessons for you. And sometimes sure. people like, you know, like toxic people, the thing, the thing that we see as being toxic in them that we want to stay away from, usually it's a case of something in ourselves that we, sure that we just don't like the, these people just sort of influence or they, or they empower a part of ourselves that we really don't like well, about ourselves. Like, you know, yeah. somebody who's like, you know, if, if we're somebody who already has like doubts about the path that we're on. And then, you know, this person that's in your life is just like, like, Oh my God, maybe you like, you should really like 
think about doing something because Do they're, something re- they're else, reflecting yeah. that fear reflecting your back doubt. at you. Yes. And you're just like, I don't need that. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I and it doesn't make them bad. It, like, cause from their point of view, they're trying to help you out. But the problem is, is that, and I, and I think, and they're you, afraid and they're, they're afraid, afraid for you yes. as well. Right. So, and I think what you need, I think the first thing to always do is, is to be honest and confront that person and say, listen, and I think if you understand the whole projection, like what you're talking about is like, yeah, if it's bringing out the fear in me, I say every time that I tell you I want to be an actor and I tell you I'm doing this acting thing and you say, is it working out? And you, and you tell me this, you need to tell that person what it does for me is I already have doubts, but you, you create more doubt in me. And so listen, I don't want that doubt because I'm doing this regardless of if I'm doubtful or not. So what I'm going to ask from you is to not doubt me anymore because it doesn't help me. But I understand where you're coming from. I understand you care. And the thing is, if they don't want to do it, then you can, you can move on and you can know that you did it. You don't have to be all like judgmental about them. But I think where people go wrong is where they don't include people in their challenges. You know what I mean? Like, like for example, um, you know, my dad and I, like, I love my dad. I love my mom. I love my brothers and we've all had our challenges. But I told my dad the other day, um, actually this was two weekends ago. I said, you know, I just want to thank you because you've always been there to really help me really push and achieve my goals. And I want to tell you that I distanced myself from you when I was younger because you were so against me doing film and acting that I didn't want to be around that. And I didn't know how to tell you. And I apologize because I feel like we missed time together. But um, I really appreciate that you've embraced that more now that I'm older and, and that we've worked that out. And, I, and uh, um, if I was more mature when I was younger, I would have, I could have saved more time in my opinion. Maybe at least I could have said to him, listen, I'm doing this film and acting thing, regardless of if you believe in it or not. And I get where you're coming from. This is what I would tell him if I could go back to that time. And I would say, I get it. You're worried about me. You don't want me to be a bum when I'm older. You don't want me to like put all my hopes into something to have it not work out, but I'm going to do it regardless. So I already have doubts. I already have fears. I, what I, what I want from you is to like, just let me walk my path. Let me walk my path. Right. And I think that's the thing. That's what makes a toxic person is they don't let you walk your path. They refuse to accept that your path is a certain way. And sometimes your path is not with them. And sometimes I think a toxic person gets upset that they don't get to go the path with you. And I, you know, some people like, uh, you know, um, I had a interesting conversation with a friend actually recently uh, a week ago as well. And, um, I said to them, you know, it's all right. Like maybe we aren't walking the same path right now. We don't need to force ourselves together, but we also don't need to be upset at each other about it. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is after we had that conversation, weirdly enough, we've become closer in a, in a certain way because we're more honest with each other. But like, we could have both just walked away and said, that person's an asshole. You're an asshole. We're yeah. all assholes. Let's, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, so, and, yeah. And one of the things that I've been, I've been trying to work on, I'm still not very good at it, but yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around it and, and be more active with it is, you know, when, when you are confronted with a situation where, you know, you are with somebody who we would say is quote unquote toxic yeah. to us, you know, they're reflecting like a fear back at us. That's let's just that's, say they're reflecting our own toxicity They're Yeah. They're reflecting our own toxicity, like our own voices of doubt yeah. and, and fear and, and what have you. And 
you know, it's, and it's the easy thing to do to just like cut this person off. Right. Just say like, like, no, just get out of my life. In fact, we're encouraged to do that. Right. It's like, no, get these people out of your life. It's like, well, what I'm trying to learn right now is that that is actually an opportunity to actually just go, what's going on with you? That you feel this way, Mm -hmm. that you, that you, that you can't do this because that's in you. Like that's in that person. Like there, that's a person who, who is, who's afraid to follow their own path, you know, who's afraid to, you know, and, and to maybe use that as an opportunity. And that doesn't mean that you become this person's shoulder or this person's, you know, crutch, but you know, there's an opportunity to tell some, to, to say to somebody, it's like, Hey, look, take a look at this thing that, that is in you you know, because you're throwing that at me, you know, and I don't have to take that on. Right. I'm more concerned about you. Right. Because you have this fear. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, sometimes you also have that fear, but I mean, you can turn that person from being somewhat of a naysayer to somebody who might start to heal something in themselves that might help them to be more authentic in, in them as well. Right. That might actually make you better friends as opposed to somebody that you have to cut off. Right. That could, that person who would be somebody that you are shutting out of your life might now become your closest ally in your journey. Yeah. Right. Totally. Like, like it's, it's unreal, but like it takes, it takes a little bit of courage because it's uncomfortable. Right. And, and a little bit of a leap of faith in somebody to say like, Hey, like to genuinely show some concern. Well, you know, you know, it's a, this is such a good topic. We've kind of stumbled onto. Um, and I, and I actually do think it relates because of this whole holistic thing, um, that we've been kind of talking about. But, um, at one point in my life, I would have probably said, I felt my dad was toxic, but in hindsight, I look back and I think this term toxic person is such a dangerous term to use because, and uh, I'm guilty of using it, but it's not that the person is toxic. It's that, like you said, they're bringing out the toxicity that's in, in you. Like you're pointing out, like it's really in you. Right. And I think the thing is, is that at the end of the day with every person, they have their own values and, um, their own kind of insecurities, I'd say where someone actually truthfully becomes toxic is when they start, um, honoring destruction over honoring connection and over honoring things. So what I mean is when you have say a sabotager, like someone who will say pose as your friend, which this has happened to me, but then in the next turn, go and talk behind your back and say disruptive, dis destructive things because they're tearing you down because they're insecure and jealous or whatever. That is a type of person where they have a damage in them that in my opinion, it's not your job to heal. It's your job to confront and you can be there and try to be supportive of them. But also there's some people who have so much damage inside them that are just in a destructive place that I think if you have goals and dreams and ambitions, sometimes it's better to simply just cut the ties and move on. Because I, I also do think that people who, um, get rid of the, um, destructive people in their life, they will tend to shine more. And the people who were destructive will either start to accept and embrace you shining, or 
they, they won't. And if they don't, it's, 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 that's on them. And if they do, because I think we should embrace everybody shining so long as they're not being destructive in the world. You know what I mean? But, um, I think, um, it, sometimes people like, like when I look at my dad and I, like part of his big value for me, and it's part of his generational thing was he wanted me to make sure I had my basis covered, that I had money, that I was successful, that I had done the right things to set up a successful life. Yeah. And when from his generation and his look, being a filmmaker and being an artist was a kind of a risk and to not have a backup plan and do that, um, you know, like for, like, I just think about him as a father, who is he, if he lets his son be a total bum grow up and not say anything. Right. So there's a responsibility for him. That's beyond who he is as a person. It's like, I have to make sure I take care of my son. So meanwhile, he's got a son who's like, I want to be a filmmaker. I want to be an actor. And so like we're, we're butting heads, but we both care about each other. That's, that's not two toxic people. That's two people that really care about each other that That are are fighting for their own thing, but they're miscommunicating. But there's toxic people where you have someone who's jealous and envious and insecure, and they're really just trying to hurt and destroy you because your shining shines light on the fact that they don't shine and they are unwilling to do what it takes to shine. Yeah. That's, and, and, and making that distinction is, is challenging. But the thing is, is that the thing, the, the light isn't really being shone on them. You know, like it's like, it is being, they, people like that are, are taking it as being like, they're, they're judging themselves so critically. They're shining light on what they don't the, like about what themselves. They don't like about yeah. themselves. Yeah. And, and again, I would still say that that is still, and again, I don't think it's anybody's responsibility to fix anybody. No, it's not even possible. It's not doable. You cannot fix somebody else. <laughs> Some like yeah, somebody's gonna, if somebody's gonna, if problem. somebody's gonna <laughs> fix themselves, they've got to do it themselves. Yes. Right. But you can be, you can shine a light on something. It's just like, I don't have to fix this thing, but it's like, just so you know, this is what you're doing. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that you want to do this type of thing. Right. And I don't feel like I can be around you right now. Cause sometimes that, that, that can be a very difficult thing for us. You know, like mm-hmm. it's just try like, and, and again, it's, it might be beyond responsibility. I mean, unless you feel really called to help somebody through something, I would say don't do it, but shine a light on, on something for someone. Like if, if there's something that's really unhealthy going on, like it, it, again, it's, it's so easy. Like somebody kind of lashes out, they attack you. They're talking behind your back about you and just be like, screw that person, man. Like, like they're, they're done. Like I'm cut off in their own. Like I'm like no more. Right. That's a super easy thing to do. But you're again, it's a, for it's, it's a missed opportunity Mm -hmm. to help somebody in a way that like doesn't actually really necessarily require a whole lot for, from you. Well, then help yourself. Yeah. Like sometimes these things, yeah, exactly. Sometimes these things come up like, um, we've talked about this, not, not during the show, but, um, like my, my dad who like, I have a, a really great relationship with, uh, and I love him to death. Um, he like, he had sent me like a text message a while ago about, you know, I won't get into the details about it, but he had sent me a text message about something and it just triggered something. 
right. in me. It just really triggered something in me that just like, it made me so angry and made me so hurt. It wasn't his intention whatsoever, but it just like brought up all of this shit. And it was, you know, and for me, it was all just like, a it, it completely was just a reflection on something that I was still carrying. Right. Like, because if I didn't care, if it wasn't something that I had in me, it wouldn't have bothered me. Right. But it did. Yeah. It really bothered me. And you know, I was glad that I just had the sort of the wherewithal to say, okay, I should take a look at this. You know, this came up for a reason, mm-hmm. even though it's uncomfortable, right? I don't want to look at this thing. There it is it's staring at me right in the face. So I'm going to take a look at it and I'm going to go through it and I'm going to like, let it go. That's what happens when these, when, when, oftentimes in my, I wouldn't even consider my dad to be a toxic person, <laughs> Yeah. but you know, when people who we would traditionally consider challenging conventions, yeah. <laughs> I guess it is all related, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, a person who we would consider as being, being toxic to us and say, well, what are they teaching me right now? Like this is like, and we've talked about the, the present, you know, the beauty of the present as being absolutely perfect you know, you're confronted with this situation where somebody has badmouthed you or somebody is saying something that is feeling, that's making you feel doubtful, that's making you feel anxious and worried and whatever about the path that you are on. And you can cut that person out or you can, you can say like, okay, well, hold on. What's going on? Like, let's actually take a look at that. Or just, just so you know, like you're doing this thing you know, like, like that's that because that sort of behavior is, is really, it's all based in, in, in fear. Mm-hmm. It's completely based in fear and nobody wants to be in that place. Nobody wants to feel that way. We all want to have, your dad just wants happiness for you. Yeah. You know, he just has certain ideas on how you're going to do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like that's all it really is. Yeah, right. Totally. It's like, you guys both want the same thing. Um, and sometimes expressing that and we come up against our own limitations of our perspectives on it. Right. But the, again, it's always, it's, that's an opportunity, mm-hmm. right? We can look at it as, as a potential for a grievance, as a potential for a reason to dislike somebody, to shut people out, or we can look at it as an opportunity to bring somebody in and we can all learn from it. Right. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I'm going to relate this back to the conventions of art because this topic that we just discussed is so pertinent in storytelling today. And I'll tell you why is because every antagonist is a protagonist who no one wants to tell their story. And so when we have antagonists in our life, if we don't look at how they're the protagonist of theirs and why they're doing what they're doing and how everything makes sense for them, then we will never be great storytellers, truthfully. And I'm saying great. We might be able to tell good stories. We might be able to tell superficial stories that are entertaining, but we'll never tell a great in-depth story until we truly understand our antagonists. And so an antagonist just because they are antagonists to you does not make them a bad person. It makes them a person who has things that do not align exactly with how you align. In fact, their view conflicts with your view. And until you 
actually, until you stop fighting and you start actually talking and embracing, you'll never really know if you can actually find a middle ground. And, um, I think, um, we have plenty of room for people to be antagonists, no matter how much we understand each other, because we're, we're always working out issues. But, um, you know, I think when we make our antagonists evil and we make them bad and we make them wrong, we, we do ourselves a great disservice as artists. And I think in, uh, um, conventional thinking is, and, and this is a, this is a talk of our times. Conventional thinking wants us to have good and bad, you know, good and evil and, uh, hero and, and anti-hero. And, um, in many ways, like the whole idea of an anti-hero is just a judgment, really, you know, um, because if you get low enough, if you, um, face enough adversity, enough things, there's a certain point where you are kind of heroic for dealing with the adversity you face. I mean, um, you know, I remember a scenario where I was in grade eight, right? And, uh, this big kid came up to me and he started pushing me around and saying all this stuff to me. And I tried to talk him down and he punched me in the forehead and I still tried to talk him down and he punched me again. And I turned and I, and I, and, and the second time he punched me, I hit him square in the nose. And I think I've told this story before. <laughs> Blood just gushes out of his nose. Right. And I'm just, I'm a little guy. I'm not even that big of a kid. This kid's like literally like my size and a half. And monitor, cause we had monitors at our school comes running up and they brought me in the principal office and they treated me like I was the bad guy. Meanwhile, I'm this little guy who got picked on by a big guy. And you know, it's like, whatever. But in my story, I'm the, I'm the hero. When I tell my story and when people hear this, they'll go, you're the hero, Brandon. But the thing is in his life, whatever was going on for him, he, for whatever reason, and, and I actually, there's more to the story as to why he came up to me, which I could fill in all the details, but I'm going to save it for the time being. Um, he was manipulated by some other people who kind of actually encouraged him to go do this. He was also a, a Korean kid who um, didn't speak English and his first language, um, as well. So he was kind of manipulated. And so he basically thought I was someone who was insulting him or something, something like that. I don't know, but it wasn't really the case. doesn't matter. Point is, is that he believed he was the hero. The, the thing is, is that it's all story at the end of the day. And when the monitor sees us and the principal sees us and the rest of school sees us, you know, at the end of the day, we're two kids that punch each other nobody's better. Or nobody's worse. You know what I mean? And in my point of the story, it, you know, I feel justified in what I did and for what he did, he feels justified. And, um, at the end of the day, maybe we miscommunicate and, and or we communicate and we actually figure out what happened at the bottom of it, which never really happened, unfortunately. But then we go, okay, I was, I was incorrect. I, I made a mistake. I got upset over something I shouldn't have got upset with. Now I'm not saying people should go around and punch each other. I don't think that's good, but, um, the point of the matter is, is that I think what happens is when we don't understand our antagonists, we're always going to find ourselves in those situations. You know, I would say like, I've never been in a fight since high school. Um, I believe it was the last fight I was ever really in was in high school because every time there's ever been a fight situation, even when I was being jumped, I, I am able to talk to the person and, and by the end of it, we've talked and <laughs> it's weird because you know, there's something about people being heard, which, diffuses everything. 
Because most of the time I find when people are really angry or they're trying to get something, they usually just feel extremely misunderstood. They're really angry. They, they feel like the only way they can do it is to assert their aggression. And I've been there. I, I know that. And uh, I think what happens is we would be in a much more peaceful world. And the point is we'd be better storytellers too, because you can manufacture conflict in a script, but why manufacture it in your real life? Like, you don't need to live conflict in your life to be a great storyteller. To be a great storyteller, I actually believe it's the reverse. You need to live almost anticlimactic because you understand climate, uh, conflict so much that you don't need conflict in your life. Like when you understand conflict to the point where you understand the intricacies of it, you almost will not experience any conflict in, in your life anymore because the moment yeah. it happens, you'll know it's there. Because like I, I truthfully believe... Now I, I'm not, I, I, this is going to sound maybe a little bit boisterous, but I don't, I don't mean it for that, but I understand conflict so well in story that usually when it happens in my real life, I identify it immediately. I'm like, Oh, you're going through this. Like what's going on? And I'm like trying to find out about them. I treat them like a character, like in my life, I'm like yeah. in a story and I'm like, and then by the end of it, we've talked and it's so peaceful. But in my stories, I don't have to have characters that, that talk like I do. I have characters that don't understand. And because they don't understand, conflict ensues because neither understand each other. And I actually think that great storytellers do not live absolutely opposite of the way they write stories. Because by the very understanding of it, you don't get yourself in it, you know? Or even if you do get yourself in it, you identify. Like, like when I see a dilemma happen in my life, I know it's a dilemma. Oh, I'm like, oh, this is this type of dilemma. It's happening in my life. And in a weird way, I go, okay, well, um, I don't have to get stressed out about it. I know what's happening. But I, I, I think most people don't even realize when a dilemma is happening in their life. They do, and they don't know what kind of dilemma it is. And they, they haven't worked out their values around that dilemma. Not to say I've worked out all my values, but the, the, conventional way of thinking, like, um, and I want to say this with acting is that the struggling artist, oh, I need to struggle to play a struggling character. Bullshit. You need to be a healthy actor, healthy person. Then you can play struggle extremely well. Yeah. Right. So conventional thinking, I think has it backwards. And so I think where our culture, our generation is innovating to is we're getting to the point where we're realizing that awareness is more powerful than ignorance and, and trying to do it. Right. And so, you know, a lot of people have talked about method acting as uh, Jared Leto talks about it with the Joker. He's like, it's, you don't, you know, it's not that you have to go and do this. It's that it's helping you experience it a little more, but that's it. It's giving you an awareness, but like, he's not like actually fucked up. Like he's aware of how the Joker is fucked up, but he's not actually fucked up, but he's trying to put himself into experiences and create experiences, which help him to do that. And so it's actually, I think you can only really do that if you're a really healthy person and mm -hmm. you're really aware, right? So, I mean, that's like a convention in which we need to challenge, you know, that, uh, as artists, we somehow need to fall on our own sword to actually know what it's like, Yeah, you know? Yeah. When, when really like the best place to work from is like, you know, when you can sort of, in a sense, like rise above and be able to like, see all of it, right. like just be able to look at it and have perspective on, on all of it from a place of sort of like love and compassion on something. 
that's that's like something that I'm really getting into, especially with like what yeah, the work what you're doing. What, with work I'm doing and teaching is just like no, you don't need to throw yourself down into the into the shitter in order to to do this sort of thing. In fact, you are in a better place when you can look at it from up here instead of down here. Yeah. You know, because now you can experience down here without without it consuming you. Right. Right? With having an awareness about what it actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, it can't it can't take o- take you over. Well, you know, like one of one of one of my favorite acting teachers that I had was actually Matthew Harrison. And and he pointed out he he actually was the first person that suggested that idea to me um as a as a young actor that you don't have to be a struggling artist to have like a struggle or whatever. And I think I just kind of ventured into that further, um, from his initial teachings, but he had a really good point about it all because I think, um, you know, if you're living it while it's happening, you're not acting, you're not an artist, you're just living it while it's happening. And so we can say, Oh, well, we captured you living it in life. Um, and we were talking about, uh, we were actually talking about, um, that movie, uh, with, um, Martin Sheen and Marlon Brando. It's the Vietnam War one. It's uh, Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. So in Apocalypse Now, I don't know if you know this, but Martin Sheen had a heart attack um, during the movie, and uh, he was being rushed to the hospital. And I, I actually read a book about this later. And, and um, his wife said to him, "It's just a movie. Like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're not. You don't have to live this." And he he says something about how it was pretty profound for him to realize that, but. It really is because like, I mean, yeah, you know, it's kind of abusive to capture someone who's mentally not in a good place on film and call that really good film. Whereas an actor who can actually find a way to, to have so much empathy and so much connection that they can recreate that moment in truth and full authenticity without actually being it that's where the art is, right? But if we are living it, that's documentarism. That's not, that is not like, that's a different art. That's a different thing, right? And so, um, I think, uh, you know, for any artist, I, I, I really don't think that, I think if we believe our careers are designed for us to basically be in hell, to be great artists, I think we are hugely misguided. Yes. You know, I think that we should, um, all strive to live. Well, why not live in a world of peace? Because we get to be artists. We get to live and express ourselves and discover things and find out about each other and find out about people we never would have ever had the chance to experience. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, I think that conventional teaching is very much too black and white. It's very backwards. Um, And I think that that's where art is so wonderful because art takes stuff that's backwards and black and white and it creates gray. It creates a, it creates a whole room. Like it creates gray because there's much more complexity to gray than black and white. Like black and white thinking is, should we do 3d or not do 3d? Should we do three screen or not do three screen? Right. Gray is like, gray is like for this specific film, will three screen or 3d help or hinder us? It's much more like, um, like it's much more on the whole realm of like, well, this will help a little bit in this area, but it won't help so much in this area based on a, how much will it help? Okay. We'll use it. Okay. We won't, you know, it's much more like specific and like 
not everything is black or white. Things be, are a little more gray. Yeah. Some, some things are a little more dark. Some things are a little more light, whatever. It doesn't matter. But, um, that is more where I think we're headed as artists, you know? And I think that's where challenging conventions really comes in is let's get away from black and white thinking and start thinking more in the spectrum of black and white, you know, in the gray area of like, yeah. what's possible. Right. Just like, yeah. uh, you know, when we talk about a toxic person, toxic, well, they're toxic, um, you know, on the lighter side, you know, on the lightest side, they do everything and appreciate and, and they just work and it's so easy to be around. There's no conflict on the dark side. They're absolutely destructive. They want to destroy me. They hate me for some reason. Um, and it doesn't matter what I say to them. They yeah. will like, they'll kill me if they could. Right. And there are people on both sides of the spectrum in our world, but most people are probably like somewhere in this gray area. And most that we're around are probably not very close to the dark side. I mean, yeah. really like if you have someone next to you, who's going to kill you, you're probably in the CIA or something. You're like, not, yeah. you know, you're not a normal dude, you know, <laughs> or, yeah. or, or chick, right? Like <laughs> I said, dude, I'm going to say chick. I'm yeah. not going to, no, 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 I get it. I get it. <laughs> you gave me a look. There'll people. still be, oh, there'll still be some complaints. <laughs> ah, whatever. Complaints. All right. <laughs> doesn't mean anything. Um, but, uh, no, I, yeah, I hear you. I mean, like the moment that you just, you know, when you want to write something off, when you want to just split something off and just say like, no, this is not, this is not a part of me. This is not a part of my society. This is not a part of my world. You know, it's, it's a huge, it's a massive disservice to everybody when you, when you do that you know, because, you know, the moment you say it's like, it's like, oh, well, she's a bitch or that guy's an asshole or a douchebag or whatever. It's like, well, that's not entirely the case, is it? Mm-hmm. You know, and if you could actually do it and, and look into it and see the story, you know, of that person, if you're able to do that, you would realize that it's not exactly the case. You right. know, there's it. Yeah. I mean, and even with, like with, with art and like with storytelling, you know, like we've, we've seen that sort of been an evolution in terms of how we tell story these days on a more, on a broader basis now. Whereas we film, especially like we used to deal a lot with black and white or old tales, you know, good and evil, Mm -hmm. you know, was the, was this sort of this paradigm that was worked with the battle between good and evil. And now we've kind of come into this thing. It's like, well, what is that really? What is, what is good and what is evil? Are, are people really just that? Mm-hmm. Is that, does that even exist? Right. And, and we've, because we've started to realize as we've examined through art, you know, like art has been a huge part of this and saying like, well, that's not exactly true. Is it, mm-hmm. you know, like you look at something like breaking bad, was he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Right. Well, that, I, it's, it's like, you know, it's so great. Like it's, it's, and, and ultimately like what, who's to say? Well, and not, not many people will see themselves as a toxic person. I mean, I think some people know that they're destructive. They know that they're out to cause some harm and they're anarchistic mm-hmm. and whatever, but that's, that's a very, very rare situation. I'd say most people um, and you know, granted, I haven't met everybody, so I don't know what everybody's like. I'm somewhat of an assumption, but I would, from what I understand about our psychology is there's not many people walking around thinking they're a toxic person. And I mean, and the reason why I feel pretty confident about saying that is like, 
I've probably been toxic in my life, but did I think of myself as a toxic person? You know what I mean? Like, it's not like we're, we're walking around going, Oh, I'm, I'm the toxic person. Most of us want to defend that we're right and everyone else is wrong and someone else is toxic. But, um, you know, a toxic, that's why a toxic person in your life wouldn't necessarily remove themselves, um, because they don't necessarily see themselves as toxic. Right. But I think, um, uh, I think when, when you have really good friends around you, like, and I'm talking about friends that are like, really like when we have truthful friendships, a true friend would come and I, and, and this is my opinion, but I think a true friend would say, Hey, you're kind of being an asshole right now. You know what I mean? Instead of saying, ah, forget that guy. I'm going to start talking behind his back. I'm going to start doing some whatever. If you're really a friend of that person and your other friend is not doing so great with you in your opinion, the best thing you can do is talk to them and help them understand and talk to them and whatever. And if they don't agree with you and you're not going to have a communication, whatever you walk away. But if you really believe in what you're upholding was good, they will probably come around because in my experience, when I've talked to people who I felt were not being so great or they, or whatever, they did something that was whatever. I tend to find that people generally come back around and, and it usually only takes a few days or a week or sometimes a few weeks and sometimes a few months, sometimes a few years, but people will come back around and they'll usually say, you know what? I thought about what you said and it landed with me. Usually. Now, if I'm the asshole, I'll come around and be like, you know what? I thought about what you said and I realized that I, uh, I wasn't really being appreciative. You know, like for example, um, uh, a good friend, a good friend of mine. Well, we dated for a bit and she used to complain to me a lot, you know, and she would, and, and, and it was the period we dated for a bit. And I ultimately ended the relationship because I was like, I can't, I, I don't want the complaining all the time. But I had this realization actually recently where I realized that, um, someone pointed out to me, it's like, well, they're complaining because they trust you. And I thought, Oh my God, my heart just fucking sunk. And I was like, of course they're complaining because I'm the one person they can talk to. And I had this overwhelming amount of sadness come in yeah. and I was like, I'm such an asshole because <laughs> all I was concerned about was being positive and whatever. Right. And so at the time I felt totally justified in my choices. And, and, and the thing is, is that, um, you, I, I find that I think I'll end up becoming closer with this person ultimately because of my recognition, because once they get acknowledgement and I'm not saying that we should go around and complain to each other, but the fact that I understand why they were doing it from a more compassionate place. And I really do believe in hindsight that that's yeah. why they were complaining because I was one person they could talk to and complain to. And it was kind of bringing me down, but at the same time, I really appreciate that I had someone in my life that trusted me enough to share that. So, and I think people encounter this all the time. I, you know, I've heard people say to me, Oh, this person is so negative. It was like that after that hit me, I thought, wow, like when we call someone negative, maybe that person is just someone who really trusts us. And that's a wonderful thing. And I'm not saying that they should keep complaining to us, but maybe we should have a little compassion as to why this is happening and not be so judgmental, at least because I know I was. So, I think in the moment we don't realize we're toxic or being an asshole or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think if we have the humility and the awareness and the empathy later on, we can recognize. And I think, um, if we ever think that our hands aren't dirty of being the asshole or being toxic, I think that we have a real issue. 
as a person. Well, I mean, and I also think the thing is like, it's not necessarily to to say that you, you are an asshole. Right. I don't think that this, like this specific example that you've given, I, that doesn't make you an asshole. It just makes you a person who didn't see the truth of it at the time. Sure. So like, you know, you've got to let it go and yeah, you've got to, you got to forgive, gotta forgive right? yourself yeah. and, you know, and be like, Oh, you know what? I didn't see that at that time. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, like I, like I see that now. Right. I didn't before I was at the limits of where I was at. Well, and I was, I was, I mean, uh, I mean, it's like, and I also have to acknowledge, and I'd say this for anybody, but we, we all do. I have to acknowledge that I was doing the best I could at that time. Um, and I wasn't trying to be destructive in any way. I I know my intent was good. Um, and I know I was trying to look out for my goals and my interests and what I needed. And if I had not done it and made that decision, it doesn't, I might not have understood it. And and also like it was affecting me in the place I was at. I think I'm a little bit more emotionally stronger now so I can handle a little bit more. Still, I would say given the choice, I would rather be around, I would prefer to be around someone who's positive yeah. than someone who's negative. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, of so, course. So, I mean, just because that person trusts me doesn't necessarily give them the excuse that they just get to complain around me now, you know, cause I still have to speak to my truth because, and, and I think that, you know, if they can respect the fact that, you know, um, being around me, that's something that I, you know, I want to be, I want to be focused on the positive. I want to be focused on, on can do what works, whatever. Um, I don't want to spend all my time focused on the negative. No, of course not. Right. And I mean, but I mean, ultimately by being able to, sh- again, shine a light onto these things, you know, like by being able to point these out to people. And again, it's sometimes uncomfortable. Right. Right. It's like, it's important. It's more important to do that than, than to not do it. Right. You know, to, to take a look at these things and, and to challenge these things. And that doesn't mean it's nasty at all. It can be done from completely from a place of, of sincerity and compassion, totally. um, for another person and say like, and, and really just listen to somebody. Sometimes that's all it really needs. Somebody just needs to feel like they're really being listened to, Right. you know, with these, with, these things that are troubling them, you know, that are weighing down on them. And again, it doesn't mean that you're there to fix them. And maybe beyond this one moment, you will never speak to them again. But maybe that one moment that you took plants the seed of something that helps somebody to like, look at it Mm -hmm. and to, and to sort of heal that and overcome that in themselves. Right. You know, and now they're not that person anymore. They're not well, this, this person who's complaining about things anymore, who, who are a little bit happier in their lives. And it's like, and that's incredible that it's not necessarily for you to know exactly the impact that you've had on somebody. Right. Right. And you know, um, the other thing too, is the other side of the whole coin is that we all are responsible for the behavior we enable in others. And, um, regardless of if they do it or not by us knowing the person, um, we enable it. Like, so, you know, um, generally I have friends who smoke, you know, but generally I will tell my friends, you know, I'm not, I don't really like that you smoke and I'll tell them that and, and I'll tell them why. And I'll say, you know, because whatever. And I say, it's totally cool if you do what you do. It's not, it's, it's all right, but I'm not also going to say like, okay, I'm not going to be your friend cause you smoke. 
but at the same time, I feel it's important as a friend of, to not say that, you know, I'm not, it's not, and, and you know what? And, and I have found that most of my friends who smoke really appreciate that because they get that it comes from a place of care. And I've told them before, he says, I want you to be around for a long time. And I don't want to go through an experience where, you, you know, you're not healthy or whatever. And I, and, and I want to see you flourish. And, um, you know, and the, you know, some still smoke and, and some, you know, very, very occasionally, whatever. But I mean, it, it's, the thing is, is that I'm not responsible for their choices that they make, but I have to be like considerate of what I enable. And so this person I was dating, I also have to remember that I, by just going, Oh, well they trust me. So I'm just going to let them complain all the time because it's so good. They trust me in some ways I'm enabling them to complain. And in, in many ways, um, in my value system, I don't necessarily believe that's the best way for us to, to flourish as human beings. I think, um, if we focus too much on our problems, we end up making our world painted by them, you know, and I think it's good for us to acknowledge our problems, but to focus on solutions and to focus on what's good. And, you know, I actually find with you, you know, you're someone who is even more positive than I am around things, which, uh, you know, t- I tend to say, Oh, you know, I'll talk about the election. I'll be like, man, things are fucked. And you'll be like, well, you know, there's some other good things that have been happening. And, uh, and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's true. You know, but like you have <laughs> clearly that perspective where you're acknowledging the problem, but you're looking at a positive out of it. Right. And so, that's a, that's an interesting thing for me to experience that because I actually find, wow, I was getting a little negative there, you know, which is something I don't really like to do. But, um, uh, you know, and I don't mind being that person for others, but if it's all complaints and, and, you, and no solution, I find I get a little exhausted. Yeah. I, I'd imagine you would oh, too. Oh no, it right? is, it is yeah. very exhausting yeah. to, to be in that, that place. And it, it's actually not productive either. Right. You know, just to, to complain about things like there is, especially right now, you know, like at this moment in time, there just, there just seems to be so much craziness going on in the world. And you know, that's it, not untrue. I, I completely understand that perspective. And, and sometimes I get overwhelmed by it myself, but I always try and look at all of this stuff as been like, okay, again, this is all coming up for a reason. Mm-hmm. Like these, all of these things are entering in, especially just cause of the age that we're in, you know, it's like, we've all just like figured out how to share like important things on the internet. All of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> at least that, sometimes that's how I feel. It's yeah. like, did we just all figure out how to like share important things all <laughs> right And so now everyone's like learning that we can do this now and bring awareness to things. And, you know, it can, and now, so like everything seems to be so negative, you know, like it's because we're just like, Oh my God, look at this issue and this issue and this issue and this issue. And it's like, and just trying to be like, you know what? This is all fantastic. Yeah. This is all great that we are now all talking about it. Mm Mm-hmm you know, we're finally talking about these things, you know, and like really considering it, no matter what side of, you know, this issue, whatever the issue is, there's yeah. plenty of them um, <laughs> that you're on. We're having a conversation about it now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, right? Cause, uh, I have one friend, he's, uh, really like Republican, you know, very much like he lives in the States, whatever. But, um, uh, it was really interesting cause, uh, I, a conversation started. I don't remember by which one of us, but there was me and there's two, two other friends in him. So four of us. And, um, 
we all started having this conversation and he was very much on one side and one of them was very much on the other. And by the end of it, everybody kind of heard each other. And, 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 um, was so fascinating about particularly my one friend was he kind of came and, and really, um, you could see in the conversation about how he had kind of had a, uh, you know, he had a shift around it. And I thought, well, well, that's a wonderful thing. You know, it's not like, like it's an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, we all kind of talked it out and, and, and he had some really great points. And then my other friends had some really great points. And I was kind of more of an observer at this point, to be honest. But, um, uh, I think I threw my two cents in early in the conversation, but I was kind of observing the conversation. This is funny because it sounds like a millennial conversation, you know, because <laughs> we're talking over threads, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> So it's all recorded. The government can look at it. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, we all kind of came to a little bit more of an understanding of each other and each other's point of views. And it was like, that never really happened before when I was younger. We never really like just kind of put our views out there, talked about them, at least not about like uh, things that are really like big world issues. You know, they were usually about like, I don't know. And maybe it's a thing about being younger. But when I was younger, it was more about like more I don't know, just kind of more about things that we cared about, like, say, uh, you know, film and television and art and being an actor or something, right? Whereas now, like, we're all doing that, but we're all talking about bigger issues. And, and I think we're, uh, I'm finding that most of my social circle, which is nearly a couple thousand people online, I'm finding that everybody tends to seem to be kind of evolving. We're all kind of learning and in and, and this uh, last election, which has been so fascinating because it's been so extreme, I think, even though it's American politics, has brought a lot to light in the world totally beyond that, mm-hmm. which um, is, is, I think, a really good thing because I think awareness um, creates a whole new realm. And I think like in the past, it just wasn't accessible to be as aware of the stuff, you know, like I think right now we have you have literally things going off. You have your, your Twitter, your Pinterest, your Facebook, your email, your phone call, your meeting in person, your Instagram, your Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Everything is happening. And so information cannot be blocked. It's like, and people are sharing their opinions, um, at least in my social circle more than ever. And this is probably like other people who were like more, um, uh, who were doing this already. I would imagine that now everybody, now there's a lot more people who are doing it because I found that it's kind of bled into social circles beyond mine that seem to be talking about it because a lot of information that I I find I'm getting is from people who just, there something emotionally impacts them and they want to share it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that just didn't really happen. Like when I was like 10 years ago, it didn't really happen. When someone wanted to share something, it was because you were out for uh, a drink or a meal and they shared it there. But now I'm just sitting there and my feed pops up and something really interesting and you see someone share something and it's compelling and you look into it and you're like, wow, I never even knew about that, you know? And, and it's not just about the election. There's all sorts of things. And, um, one of my friends, uh, posted a quote that was something about like, it's not that the world is becoming more corrupt. It's that be- we're becoming more aware of the corruption in the world. Yeah. The, oh yeah. I think Something I saw like it was that. like, like unveil. It's like, it's the, unveiling. It's been yeah. unveiling. Yeah. So I think, you know, when we get upset because we're like, like, I think awareness is sometimes hard because when we discover this stuff is happening, it's not so great. But at the same time, I think it's really good that people are becoming more aware of the corruption because corruption really only exists 
I, I mean, I've done a lot of research on this with the movies I've been writing, but corruption really only exists when people either deny its existence or are unaware of it. Yeah. So once we start acknowledging that it's there and we're aware of it, I mean, it's a lot harder for corruption to exist because we identify right away yeah. what's happening. You know? And I mean, and the thing is, is that it, things eventually change. I was just talking to my fiance about this last night. Uh, I was talking to Kat and I was thinking like, you know, it's, it's interesting with all of this stuff because, you know, do you remember when an inconvenient truth came out? Yeah. You know, that was like the first sort of like big documentary that came out about global warming and sort of what we're doing to our planet. And, you know, it, it, it made some waves, it made some ripples, you know, and, and nothing really happened right away. Right. Like in terms of everybody actually doing something, nothing happened right away, but now things are happening. You know, like the, the way that countries and governments and, and people are thinking about environmentalism and what we're doing to the planet. Like that's very real now. Mm -hmm. That is a very important thing to like globally, but at the time it didn't like, it just seemed to be like this small thing. And it just, it's, it just takes, sometimes it just takes a little bit of time. And, you know, sometimes these new things come up and now they're coming up faster than ever. Mm -hmm. Right. But we also have the potential to deal with them more quickly than we've ever been able to deal with them as well because of that. Right. Um, so it's like these things come when they enter our awareness and, and they cause some kind of a shift, you know, that I, I think it's important that we, that we don't disregard how, how actually big on a grand, like on, on a big scale, how, how much of an impact just the awareness can be from people just suddenly being like, just that one moment of pause when you're confronted with a situation and maybe you read an article that was maybe kind of about this, what for whatever reason, the situation that you're is now right in front of you and you would have reacted this way before, mm-hmm. but now you go, you know what? Maybe I'm going to react this way now mm-hmm. because this might not be what I thought it was. Right. You know, that's incredible. That's extraordinary. When you have that happening in these small little ways all throughout the world, like the, it's, it's incredible the shifts that can happen. Yeah. And it, it's just weird because like, this seems like we're so far off, off topic, but it, <laughs> but it isn't, it's, no. it's still about breaking conventions of things, you know, like challenging how we think about things. Yeah. Um, and how we do things like that's really ultimately like, it's about doing that in life. And it's about doing that in our art as well. You know, and you know what? That's my closing comment. That's good. That's good. I like it. Um, yeah. Well, and I think that it's uh, you know, um, we're generation. Our generation is challenging these conventions. I think that that's, um, you know, I think that's something that's happening because um, we're we're more aware than ever. I mean, we're more. Well, we're not there's, there's certain challenges, but there's an awareness, a mutual awareness. There's conversations that are happening that weren't able to be, to happen before. And there's also, um, kind of a, uh, a change in our values. You know, a friend of mine was pointing out that, um, um, you know, he's, he's actually a little bit older. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he was pointing out that like, it's funny because, you know, 
and I, I'm not saying this is across the board, but he was like, it's funny because, um, as an older man, he's like, I'm finding that younger women kind of like to date nerds a little bit more, like not nerd, nerd, but like, um, but it, it kind of like, there's a, there's a change in, in our, in our conventions of how we do stuff, you know, and we were talking about how this like so funny because 21 Jump Street, remember when they all show up and like, yeah. you know, and he's trying to do it the traditional way, like the, the, the jock sports car, the car yeah. jock, yeah. And one, one bag over his shoulder and everybody's like, you're going to throw out your back and like your car's a polluter and you know, all this leather, yeah. you know, whatever. And so like, I think what happens is like our awareness is changing. So our values are changing and, and the things that we look for and want are different. And I think, um, you know, uh, as artists, I think what, like, what really like we're in a time of where awareness is like your best friend. Um, not just awareness about the world, but self-awareness is huge. Like, cause you used to think about it, like, think about it. The, the olden day actors, it used to be like the million or the, the, the million mile stare, the thousand mile stare. And, um, you know, you don't talk about your emotions. You don't talk about how you feel and you don't cry and all this other stuff. And, you know, the Marlboro man and, you know, whatever. Right. And these were our images, but now, and I, I'm still, that's still there, but now it's more about, you know, um, being emotionally aware and being educated and being, uh, being able to hold a conversation. These things are much more valued in our, in our society these days than, than just being the strong silent type. You know what I mean? Now I granted the strong silent type works in certain scenarios. It still will and always will cause there's a mystery to it, but, um, things are evolving. And I think as artists, if we want to challenge conventions, we need to get out of the past and stop letting those images and ideas of the past influence how we do today. And we need to get in touch and aware with what's going on today. And then once we're aware with what's going on today, not only are we innovating from the past, but we're innovating from the current moment, you know? And I think if we're trying to innovate from the past, we're always going to be miles behind. But if we're innovating from today, if we're connected to what's going on right now, then we're in touch with something special. And I think that's where like great story scripts are going to come from. That's where great everything's going to come from because it's new. Like, have you ever stumbled on your Facebook feed or whatever? And you come across an article that someone posted, but it was like from three months ago. And you're like, it's old news. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas when someone posts something that's fresh and it's new, it's like way more interesting because like I'm very up to date on certain subjects. So when someone posts something, especially about the whole political race, that's three months ago, I'm like this, it's new this to irrelevant. them. It's new to them though. Cause they haven't been paying attention. Right. But like, like I'm paying attention to the people who are like right now who have been paying attention the whole time who are looking at what's happening right now. So, um, I think, you know, we have a generation that's very like paying attention to what's happening right now on the, on the most part. Yeah. So when we make art, we need to be paying attention. Like we can't be that's, like missing the boat, you know, that's really interesting. Cause yeah. that I've never really thought about that because it's like, Oh, everybody's like, like nobody knows what's going on anymore. It's like, well, maybe not exactly. Yeah. That's not entirely true. You know, there's so many cynical people. It's like, Oh, kids, they're not like, they don't, know what's going on. They're just like paying attention to this and that and whatever. It's like, how do you know? I would argue that I would argue that kids today know more than what, what we knew when we were teenagers, you know, like little kids know more than teenagers and teenagers know more than 20 something. And I know for a fact that a lot of 20 year olds right now, um, at least they seem to know way more than the people who are in the thirties and forties and fifties because they're like, 
on social media, they're paying attention, they're reading articles, like, and I'm not saying it's across the board, and it's always like this, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are, like, very ignorant and not paying attention, yeah. but um, the amount of young people that are aware today versus what I remember, the young people I was growing well, up with. Well, it's just like, the access to information. <laughs> totally. It's yeah. just, like, it's it's at everybody's fingertips, so. Yeah. All right. Wow. Wow, challenging the conventions of art. Yeah. That's what we tried to discuss yeah. in a and maybe, very long-winded way. <laughs> yeah, maybe we did that. Maybe we didn't, but yeah. hey, who knows? I yeah. like this conversation, though. I yeah, I did. I enjoyed I, it. Me too. I thought it was a good one. All right, so we'll call it. No we'll, final notes. We, we summed it up. Right? Yeah, I think we summed it up, so uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.